Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome, hello, and welcome to show 183. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. We have got a great show lined up today. I'll give you a little heads up what's coming in today's show. That lone DJ spinning his discs out in the wilds of space, David Bradshaw, lands with another Tau City Radio. Then we've got a fantastic promo by <laughs> the amazing Fred Heimbar. He wrote himself a song and it's in Amazon now, so you can go and buy it as well. Got a promo for that called Earth Girl. Fred, that's fantastic. Then we have a short story from years ago by a guy called Charles Fontenier. Look out for that, Adam Drive. Then we have an interview with a gentleman called Mark Zickery. Mark, if no one knows Mark Zickery, you, you will do, because you'll have watched some of his work. Mark has just wrote so many scripts for TV and film. It's just, it's quite scary what he's done. Deep Space Nine, Star Trek, he's been up for in Hugo Awards and everything like that got an interview going with Mark which just it's one of those things where you, you just kind of you're meeting your idols do you know what I mean and the, the stuff Mark's done is just staggering and we're getting together and we're doing a TV film workshop as well so I'm going to talk about that but please just check out that interview because if that's what you, you know if you do like that them sort of things with them kind of TV programs Mark's the guy that's responsible for it then we have main fiction and it's another Will McIntosh story Link Worlds Again, Will's new book is out there, Soft Apocalypse, came out the 1st of April, so a little bit of promotion for Will, and this is a, a great story as well. Then at the end, we have Michael Swanick with his How to Run a Con. So that is Starship Sova's, going to say Oral Delights there, that was going back a little bit, number show 183. I do hope you'll stick around and enjoy the show. <laughs> So just before we get into Tau City Radio, a little bit of announcement, and it's a bit of a shame, but that's the way these things go. I'm going to knock on the head the the making of Starship Sova stories. There's no one actually, there's only one person signed up, and it just seems a shame to kind of carry on trying to kind of promote that when there's, you know, it's, it's taken up, I suppose, mine and Dee's time and Ben Wooten's time. And, you know, if there's only, like, say, at the end of the kind of promotion time to sell these things, there's only, like, a couple taking up the offer. It's just, it's a lot of work just for two people or something like that. So if that, unfortunately, that's the way it goes, we're just going to knock that one on the head. But there's, there's certainly other workshops coming up as well. And I actually see on the Citrix site they've got this little h2 hd faces banner saying you're coming soon 
so you know things are moving in that direction as well so i'll let you know but like i say we've got an, another announcing another workshop today as well with mark but first up our very own david bradshaw brings in tau city radio Okay, folks, pop quiz time. Listen carefully to these three musical excerpts and tell me which one of them is featured in the soundtrack to the motion picture Star Wars. Is it number one? Hmm. Perhaps it's number two. Then again, it could be number three. Cool. You got it figured out? Well, stay tuned, folks, for the shocking answer coming up in just about a minute or so. Thank you for tuning in to another transmission from Tau Seti Radio. I'm David Bradshaw. So did you get it? Did you figure out which of the three was from the soundtrack for Star Wars? Perhaps there's some orchestral music buffs among you, in which case you realized none of them. None of the three are from Star Wars. The first piece was the very famous Toccata and Fugue by Johann Sebastian Bach. Uh, the second excerpt came from uh, Ludwig von Beethoven's also very famous Fifth Symphony. That's the one that goes bum, 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 bum at the beginning. But I cut that out because I figured that'd be too much of a giveaway. And the third piece is the uh, Romeo and Juliet Overture, Fantasy Overture by uh, Tchaikovsky. Well, what in heaven's name am I doing with these silly trick questions? If none of them are from the Star Wars soundtrack, then why am I even bringing this up, eh? Well, bear with me for a second because we're going to have another quiz becoming like a game show or something. Anyway, this time, this quiz, I'm going to play a sound for you, and a little sound excerpt, and I want you to identify the correct character from Star Wars this time. Ready to go? Okay, I'll take that as a yes. So, that first sound, who was that? I'll play it for you again. Okay, so who was that? Was that A, Chewbacca, B, Princess Leia, or C, Jar Jar Binks? The correct answer, of course, is A, Chewbacca. Got the hang of this now? Let's try another one. Okay, so was that lovable chirp A, R2-D2, B, Lando Calrissian, 
or C, Jar Jar Binks. Sure enough, folks, that's A, R2-D2. Having fun yet? Well, I got one more round here to try on you. Listen carefully now. Okay, was that A, Darth Vader? B, Boba Fett? Or C, Jar Jar Binks? And of course the answer is coming up in just a moment. Stay tuned. So did you catch what I did there? Did you notice something different about that last example? Well, the sound, of course, unlike the first two, the first examples, of course, being Chewbacca and R2-D2, was their voices, was actually the the vocalizations uh, of the characters themselves. Chewbacca's growl, R2-D2's distinctive chirping and beeping and whistling. The third sample, which, of course, is Darth Vader, uh, it's not him, but it is him. It's a musical representation of him. But it's a very distinct musical representation of him. It's a melodic idea that bum, 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 that's so immediately recognizable and distinct uh, to you know folks who've watched these films, uh, even sometimes without even realizing it, uh, that it evokes the character without actually having to be his image or his voice in a visual sense on the screen or, or the, 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 his voice directly. It's a musical representation of him. Now, this is an old orchestral technique, an old compositional technique uh, referred to as a leitmotif, and it's nothing new. And this is where I'm going with all of this uh, interesting quiz show stuff with regards to the Star Wars soundtrack. So far on uh, previous editions of Tau Ceti Radio, we've been looking at a lot of music in science fiction, uh, you know, both the music that's depicted in the context of the story as part of the story, as well as the soundtrack music supporting uh, film via TV or or uh, theatrical release films, uh, the, the, the music supporting them. And in most cases, what we've been talking about are very exotic sounds or unusual choices of, of uh, instruments, either unconventional or, or new, groundbreaking, electronic, high-tech, computerized, what have you. We're going to look at something a little bit different here. Uh, that is the, the orchestral scores of the Star Wars films. Uh, are anything but futuristic. They're an interesting contrast to the world, to the galaxy far, far away that's being portrayed in the stories, in that they're very down-to-earth, well, down to earth, as down-to-earth as a large symphony orchestra can be, I suppose, but the point being, there's nothing futuristic or exotic about this. It is the epitome of Eurocentric Western 19th century music that provides the the soundtrack, the musical background uh, of the Star Wars films, and in actual fact is helping to tell the story, both the story on screen as well as suggesting some other interesting images. 
Now, the quiz show at the beginning of this episode did have a point, or a couple of points, actually. Uh, using the older music, the Beethoven, Bach, and uh, Tchaikovsky music, uh, first of all, was just illustrating the fact that really what John Williams has composed, when you listen to the Star Wars soundtrack, could fit very neatly with these older types of music. Now, the leitmotif technique that I'm talking about officially is more of a 19th century romantic and onward kind of a thing. It, it isn't really a concept that would have been widely in use in, say, Bach's time or, or even Beethoven. Uh, really, it was only, say, around Beethoven's time that the whole idea of giving thematic titles to these orchestral compositions was, was really coming around. Um, you know, in most cases, that's why you see these older compositions usually numbered, opus number 127, BVW, what have you, uh, from these various catalogs uh, that they, they weren't specifically named, uh, you know, the way we name something like Magic Carpet Ride or, uh, or uh, you know, Flight of the Bumblebee or Stairway to Heaven or something like that. Uh, they were just cataloged in, in the individual composer's work. Uh, by the 19th century, when you're getting into more of the Romantic era of things, uh, it became more of a practice to name tunes, uh, because the composers were using imagery to help, their, their, to guide their compositions. In many cases, they were trying to compose music that evoked in some way a certain story, or related, gave an emotional reaction to their audience, or drew one from the audience, I guess was the idea. Uh, the uh, the Tchaikovsky piece is uh, referred to as a fantasy overture. Basically, the idea was that they were composing an overture to an imaginary play, or an imaginary opera or performance. You know, Imagine that we're going to have this uh, operatic staging of the story Romeo and Juliet in this case. Well, this is what Tchaikovsky imagined as this fantastic overture to that performance that would set the mood. So throughout, he's very specifically using certain melodic ideas and images to evoke I ideas about the characters, about certain events and people and, and things going on in the course of the Romeo and Juliet story. That... Melody. I mean, you've heard that in corny romances zillions of times. It's at the point where when somebody wants to evoke a corny romantic idea in a radio play or in a TV show or a movie, they'll pull that melody out just because we have got it burned into our heads as this romantic Romeo and Juliet kind of kind of idea. So, you know, really Tchaikovsky can be credited for being pretty successful in what he was doing. In any case, with the idea of a leitmotif that takes it in a little bit more specific a direction, the leitmotif compositional technique was to assign a melodic phrase or idea to individual characters, and in the telling of the story through the context of a musical piece, reusing that melodic idea to support the character. In the case of a film, for instance, or in a, movie, in a movie like Star Wars, when a character is on screen or about to appear on screen or is engaged in some significant activity, their theme will play. And this is very insidious. This is sneaking in. Sometimes you may not even notice what's going on. In the case of Star Wars, the main theme... Bum, 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 bum. Performed much better than that, I hope. Um, is actually Luke Skywalker's theme as well. And it pops up time and time again to support his actions. 
there are themes representing the other characters, the bum, 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 being Darth Vader. So basically, with that very distinct melodic idea, they can start playing that melody, and you know, oh my gosh, here comes Darth Vader. He's going to come on the screen. Think in uh, the uh, Empire Strikes Back, for instance, there's a sequence when the Star Destroyers are floating around in space uh, menacingly, and that theme music starts, bum, 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 and you're just looking at space and spaceships soaring and making all sorts of roaring noises and all that sort of thing. And then suddenly a shadow ominously falls over the large Star Destroyer fleet, and you realize, wow, something really big and scary is coming flip the camera scene out, all of a sudden you're looking at the gigantic mega super star destroyer, and guess who's on board? Darth Vader. You know, using that sort of thematic uh, development to really build the tension coming into the scene so that, you know, oh my gosh, here it comes, it's ominous, it's scary, and bang, there he is, and it's so dramatic when the character finally makes the appearance. Other characters are supported in in a very similar way, and the type of melody is very important in suggesting what type of character, what sort of emotional reaction you're looking for from the character. Think about Luke Skywalker's theme. He's the main character of the movie, therefore the movie, as a main theme, has a type, has a tune, has a melody that's shared with the main character, Luke Skywalker. His earlier appearances in the film, when he's somewhat of an uncertain, sad, misguided, struggling, trying to figure out where he wants to go in life, young boy, are presented a little more wistfully, perhaps, uh, in an early appearance of the tune, when he's looking off into the two sons of Tatooine, two, two, uh, the two sons just off the horizon near sunset of Tatooine, and he's, uh, you know, wishing he was somewhere else, and you hear the French horn just sort of plaintively, wistfully in the background going just very softly Um, whereas when he's swinging over the chasm rescuing Princess Leia later on in the Death Star it's it's loud and brash with trumpets and crashing cymbals and all that sort of thing it's the same melody but arranged with slightly different instruments to give it a different mood and to tell a different part of the story while still representing that character. Fascinating compositional technique, really. Of course, in the soundtrack to our beloved space opera, Star Wars, there might be more going on than just story support or story enhancement. Uh, Perhaps the music is telling a story of its own. I'd like to uh, refer to a really interesting book, uh, Off the Planet, Music, Sound, and Science Fiction Cinema, which I have right here, and I'm going to rattle the good old paper pages for you a little bit while I read the particulars. Uh, Off the Planet, Music, Sound, and Science Fiction Cinema, edited by Philip Hayward, and it's a Perfect Beat Publications, John Libby Publishing, out of England, out of the UK, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, John Libby, John Libby Publishing uh, uh, in Eastleigh, 
uh, UK, distributed in North America by Indiana University Press, and uh, I'll put a uh, link to all of that uh, in the show notes. Uh, good Captain Tony Willing. Uh, specifically, uh, the chapter five of this book, this is a book, uh, Music, Sound, and Science Fiction Cinema, just that, uh, of a number of, of articles, uh, academic articles, on uh, the appearance and use of music in science fiction cinema film. Chapter five is called Nostalgia, Masculinist Discourse, and Authoritarianism in John Williams' Scores for Star Wars and Close Encounters of the Third Kind by Neil Lerner. Now we won't get into uh, Close Encounters. In this particular situation, uh, perhaps we can talk about that on another occasion. But really interesting article, and uh, this book is full of interesting articles, but this this one really caught my interest. It was really intriguing. Uh, he's pointing, first of all, to the fact that John Williams avoids the more 1950s approach of science fiction soundtrack writing. Uh, in, instead of trying to evoke an alien landscape, uh, with strange electronic sounds or the unfamiliar, he's gone in exactly the opposite direction. Um, that in spite of the imagery on the film, in some cases being you know very dirty and worn and almost you know, very gritty and real, the, the, the ships and the robots are all kind of dented and beat up and worn out, and there's a trash compactor and things aren't perfect and gleaming the way they sometimes are in uh, in uh, science fiction films. Um, but the music is gleaming and perfect, and it's anything but strange or electronic or alien. It's very familiar. It's 19th century, Eurocentric sounding orchestral music, um, and this is very intentional. Uh, John Williams was attempting to evoke a certain nostalgic feeling. He was using compositions, not only the orchestra, the sound, the style of music, was meant to evoke swashbuckling films and old radio serials and that sort of thing, wanting this, this feeling of warmth and familiarity and excitement to evoke a similar sort of mood of adventure and high spirits. Uh, and in so doing, portray a sense of character development with our theme character, the theme of the movie again, ba 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 ba, and its musical development through the film, reflecting the character development of the young boy, Luke Skywalker, as he becomes a man. Basically, he's trying to take you to that galaxy a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. But we're talking about a feeling of nostalgia here, not of literally a galaxy far, far away, and in actual fact, something not so long ago and far, far away. He's trying to take you back to simpler times where men were men and women were helpless damsels in need of rescue. You got it. The suggestion is that there is a very masculinist slant here. And it follows Luke's development all the way through, musically speaking, reinforcing that idea that the initial portrayal of Luke as kind of a wimpy, confused kid who doesn't quite know where he wants to go and whines a little bit, and his theme is presented weakly and softly or distantly at first. And as he swings into action and rescues poor old Princess Leia, who, you know, can't really seem to do anything on her own except say, Help me, Obi-Wan, you're my only hope! that his theme music becomes stronger and more manly and masculine and and it takes the the uh, the image even further uh 
right into the trenches, I'm afraid. Uh, you know, spoiler alert, this might completely ruin your enjoyment of uh, Star Wars from, from now on, but uh, to suggest uh, slightly more uh, interesting imagery uh, with regards to the concluding scenes of the story, that is, of course, in the trench on the Death Star. Imagine, if you will, that you're looking at, as he points out in his article, a group of nervous young men, all men, all of the pilots in their X and Y starfighters, gathering for what, for all intents and purposes, looks like a junior high sex education class on how to penetrate that gosh darn Death Star, and then flying off in their missile-like X and Y rocket ships to launch their missile at the considerably larger round ovum like death star and there's lots of scenes of of sweaty men's faces groaning and grunting and straining and failing to hit the target with their missile and then finally our manly hero has his great moment of breakthrough of finally becoming a man and just senses the right time with the force and all of that good stuff and uh, releases his rocket and see breathes a delightful sigh of relief as everything explodes and climaxes and uh, yeah i'm serious folks um that might just ruin this movie for me in any case there you have it good old-fashioned swashbuckling manly men helpless women a masculinist subtext all lovingly brought to you by John Williams and his baton. But enough of the smut, folks. Let's, uh, let's try to put some fun back into Star Wars, shall we? Have yourself a look at jeremymessersmith.com. That website is absolutely filled with uh, artwork, photographs, uh, cool things to buy like t-shirts and music, 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 and more music. Uh, Jeremy lives in Minneapolis in the good old U.S. of A. And uh, his music has been featured on the ABC and NBC television networks, as well as MTV, uh, on ABC on the Ugly Betty TV show, and NBC, uh, uh, the show Chuck, has uh, featured his music as well. Uh, He's also done some absolutely delightful short animations, including one depicting the entire Star Wars trilogy in about two minutes, uh, consisting of animated paper cutouts, and it's absolutely amazing. So uh, I certainly recommend getting over to his website and having a look at that. And uh, to go with that, we have his song, Tatooine. Twin sons of Tatooine Taught me everything I know Twin sons of Tatooine Taught me everything I know The 
this room up there for second chances Singles are fine, but doubles are fantastic I'd like to think that there's a star for me and you Spinning round, falling for one another Sun's dead and weak Taught me everything I know Twin sun's dead and weak Taught me everything I know Solos are fine But duets are romantic A pair is grand And a tree would be disastrous I'd like to think There's a star for me and you Spinning round, falling for one another Tatooine by Jeremy Messersmith. I'd like to thank Parish Salanki for bringing Jeremy's work to my attention. Uh, so thank you, Parish, and of course, thank you, Jeremy. Well, that brings us to the end of another space opera and another transmission from Tau City Radio. Be sure to tune in next time for a little bit of digital and a little bit of analog. For Starship Sofa, I'm David Bradshaw. Turn on your radios, folks. David, what can I say? Honestly, I'm just so pleased you've come on board Starship so far there and is the regular host and DJ. <laughs> Fantastic stuff. David, brilliant. And in keeping in the music theme, our very own Fred Heimbar has just delivered this crazy song there. Please, I've went and bought it. Go and treat yourself. I think it's 99 cents, 99 whatever pounds, dollars. It's cheap as chips and he's worked so hard on it. Fred. Hi, folks. Fred Heimbaugh here. I'm grateful for the opportunity to tell you about my new song called Earth Girl. It's an all acapella pop song, and it's the story of a space alien who falls in love with a vacuum cleaner. Captain, don't keep me cooped up in this can. I have not breathed. The fresh air since this voyage began Planet Earth looks like land I want out to explore Let me meet some cute natives Please unseal the door I see you've been the window worker You are the one for me
can be purchased at iTunes, Amazon.com, and everywhere that fine MP3 downloads are sold. Use the search term Fredosphere. Thanks. You glide across the floor on little wheels. You glide across the floor on little wheels. You glide across the floor on little wheels. I see you in the window, work girl. You are the one for me, my earth girl. You really push my buttons, earth girl. There you go, I'll put a link on if you want to go over and treat yourself to Fred's song. Fantastic. So, short story time. It is by Charles L. Fontenier. And I haven't really got much kind of info on Charles Fontenier. He was born 1917 and he died 2007. Basically, he was an American journalist and science fiction writer. He wrote science fiction novels and short stories. This story is narrated by Jim Phillips. Jim has done a couple of stories for The Good Old Sofa and no doubt he will do some more as well. So the Starship Sofa is very proud to present Adam Drive by Charles Fontenay. The two spaceship crews were friendly enemies, sitting across the table from each other for their last meal before blastoff. Outside the ports, the sky was nothing but light-streaked blackness, punctured periodically by Earth glare, for Space Station 2 whirled softly on its axis, creating an artificial gravity. Connor, I figured you the last man ever to desert the rockets for a hot rod tow job, chided Russo Bott, captain of the Mars Corporation's gleaming new freighter, Marsward 18. Bott was fat and red-faced, and one of the shrewdest space captains in the business. John or Johns, at the other end of the table, inclined his grizzled head and smiled. Times change, Russo. 
he answered quietly. Even the Mars Corporation can't stop that. Is it true that you're pulling 5,000 tons of cargo, Captain? asked one of the crewmen of the Marsward 18. Something like that, agreed Johnner, and his smile broadened. I have only about twice the fuel supply you carry for a hundred-ton payload. The communicator above them squawked and blared. Captain Johns and Captain Bott of Martian Competition Run, please report to control for a final briefing. I knew it, grumbled Bott, getting heavily and reluctantly to his feet. I haven't gotten to finish a meal on this blasted merry-go-round yet. In the space station's control section, Commander Ortega of the Space Control Commission, an aesthetic officer in plain blues, looked them up and down severely. As you know, gentlemen, he said, blast-off time is zero six hundred. Tonnage of cargo, fuel, and empty vessels cannot be a factor under the law. The Mars Corporation will retain its exclusive franchise to the Earth-Mars run unless the ship sponsored by the Atom Star Company returns to Earth with full cargo at least 20 hours ahead of the ship sponsored by the Mars Corporation. Cargo must be unloaded at Mars and new cargo taken on. I do not consider the 20-hour bias in favor of the Mars Corporation a fair one, said Ortega severely, turning his gaze to Bot. But the Space Control Commission does not make the laws. It enforces them. Docking and loading facilities will be available to both of you on an equal basis at Phobos and Marsport. Good luck. He shook hands with both of them. Saturn, I'm glad to get out of there, exclaimed Bot, mopping his brow as they left the control section. Every time I take a step, I feel like I'm falling on my face. It's because the central station's so close to the center, replied Johnner. The station's spinning to maintain artificial gravity, and your feet are away from the center. As long as you're standing upright, the pull is straight up and down to you. But actually, your feet are moving faster than your head in a larger orbit. When you try to move, as in normal gravity, your body swings out of that line of pull and you nearly fall. The best corrective I've found is to lean backward slightly when you start to walk. As the two space captains walked back toward the wardroom together, Bot said, Johnner, I hear the Mars Corporation offered you the Marsward 18 for this run first, and you turned them down. Why? You piloted the Marsward 5 and the Wayward Lady for Mars Corp when those upstarts in the Argentine were trying to crack the Earth-Mars run. This Atom Star couldn't have enough money to buy you away from Mars Corp. No, Mars Corp offered me more, said Johnner, soberly now. But this atomic drive is the future of space travel, Russo. Mars Corp has it, but they're sitting on it because they've got their fingers in hydrazine interests here, and the atom drive will make hydrazine useless for space fuel. Unless I can break the franchise for Atom Star, it may be a hundred years before we switch to the atom drive in space. The hell difference does that make to you? asked Bob bluntly. Hydrazine's expensive, replied Johnner. Reaction mass isn't, and you use less of it. I was born on Mars, Russo. Mars is my home, and I want to see my people get the supplies they need from Earth at a reasonable transport cost, not pay through the nose for every packet of vegetable seed. They reached the wardroom door. Too bad I have to degrav my old chief, said Bot, chuckling. But I'm a rocket man myself, and I say to hell with your hot rod atom drive. I'm sorry you got deflected into this run, Johnner. You'll never break Mars Corp's orbit. The Marsward 18 was a huge vessel, the biggest the Mars Corporation ever had put into space. It was a collection of spheres and cylinders, joined together by a network of steel ties. 
Nearly 90% of its weight was fuel for the one-way trip to Mars. Its competitor, the Radiant Hope, riding ten miles away in orbit around the Earth, was the strangest-looking vessel ever to get clearance from a space station. It looked like a tug towing a barge. The tug was the atomic power plant. Two miles behind, attached by a thin cable, was the passenger compartment and cargo. On the control deck of the Radiant Hope, Johnner gripped a microphone and shouted profane instructions at the pilot of a squat ground-to-space rocket twenty miles away. Tan Li Cho, the ship's engineer, was peering out the port at the speck of light toward which Johnner was directing his wrath, while Kokel, the Martian astrogator, worked at his charts on the other side of the deck. I thought all the cargo was aboard, Johnner, said Tan. It is, said Johnner, laying the mic aside. That G-boat isn't hauling cargo. It's going with us. I'm not taking any chances on Mars Corp refusing to ferry our cargo back and forth at Mars. He is plotted, Johnner, boomed Kogel, turning his head to peer at them with huge eyes through the spidery tangle of his thin, double-jointed arms and legs. He reached an eight-foot arm across the deck and handed Johnner his figures. Johnner gave them to Tan. Figure out power for that one, Tan, ordered Johnner, and took his seat in the cushioned control chair. Tan pulled a slide rule from his tunic pocket, but his black almond eyes rested quizzically on Johnner. It's four hours before blastoff, he reminded. I've cleared power for this with space control, replied Johnner. That planet-loving G-boat jockey missed orbit. Left we'll swing out a little and go to him. On a conventional spacecraft, the order for acceleration would have sent the engineer to the engine deck to watch his gauges and report by intercom. But the Radiant Hope's engine deck was the atomic tug two miles ahead which Tan, in heavy armor, would enter only in emergencies. He calculated for a moment, then called softly to Johnner. Pile one in ten. In ten, confirmed Johnner, pulling a lever on the calibrated gauge of the radio control. Pile two in fifteen. In fifteen. Check. I'll have the length of burst figured for you in a jiffy. A faint glow appeared around the atomic tug far ahead, and there was the faintest shiver in the ship. But after a moment, Kokel said in a puzzled tone, No geez, Johnner. Engine not work? Sure, she's working, said Johnner with a grin. You'll never get any more G than we've got now, Kokel. All the way to Mars. Our maximum acceleration will be one three-thousandth G. One three-thousandth, exclaimed Tan, shaken out of his oriental calm. Johnner, the Marsward would blast away at one or two Gs. How do you expect to beat that at one three-thousandth? "'Cause they have to cut off and coast most of the way in an elliptic orbit like any other rocket,' answered Johnner calmly. "'We drive straight across the system, under power all the time. We accelerate halfway, decelerate the other half.' "'But one three-thousandth!' "'You'll be surprised at what constant power can do. I know Bot, and I know the trick he's going to use. It's obvious from the blast-off time they arranged. He's going to tack off the moon and use his power right to cut twenty days off that regular two hundred and thirty-seven-day schedule.' but this tugboat will make it in 154 days. They took aboard the 200-ton landing boat. By the time they got it secured, the radio already was sounding warnings for blast-off. Zero hour arrived. Again, Johnner pulled levers, and again the faint glow appeared around the tail of their distant tug. Across space, the exhaust of the Marsward 18 flared into a blinding flame. In a moment, it began to pull ahead visibly, and soon was receding like a meteor. Near the Radiant Hope, the space station seemed not to have changed position at all. The race is not always to the swift, remarked Johnner philosophically. And where the tortoise? 
said Tom. How about filling us in on this joint, Johnner? You should, Johnner, agreed Cockle. Don know all about crazy new engine. I know all about crazy new orbit. Both not know all. You tell. I plan to anyway, said Johnner. I had figured on having Serge in on it, but he wouldn't understand much of it anyhow. There's no use in waking him up. Serge was the ship's doctor psychologist and fourth member of the crew. He was asleep below on the center deck. For your information, Kokel, said Johnner, the atomic engine produces electrical energy, which accelerates reaction mass. Actually, it's a crude ion engine. Tan can explain the details to you later. But the important thing is that the fuel is cheap. The fuel-to-cargo ratio is low, and constant acceleration is practical. As for you, Tan, I was surprised that you are not understanding why we'll use low acceleration. To boost the engine power and give us more Gs, we'd either have to carry more fuel or coast part of the way on momentum, like an ordinary rocket. This way is more efficient, and our 63-day margin over the Marsward each day is more than enough for unloading and loading more cargo and fuel. With those figures, I can't see how Mars Corp expects to win this competition, said Tan. We've got them flat on the basis of performance, agreed Johnner. So we'll have to watch for their tricks. I know Marscorp. That's why I arranged to take aboard that G-boat at the last minute. Marscorp controls all the G-boats at Marsport, and they're smart enough to keep us from using them, in spite of Space Control Commission. As for refueling for the return trip, we can knock a chunk off Phobos for reaction mass. The meteor alarm bells clanged suddenly, and the screen lit up once with a fast-moving red line that traced the path of the approaching object. Miss us about half a mile said Johnner after a glance at the screen. Must be pretty big. It's coming up. He and Tan floated to one of the ports, and in a few moments saw the object speed by. That's no meteor, exclaimed Johnner with a puzzled frown. That's man-made, but it's too small for a G-boat. The radio blared. All craft in orbit near Space Station 2. Warning. All craft near Space Station 2. Experimental missile misfired from White Sands. Repeat. Experimental missile misfired from White Sands. Coordinates? Find time to tell us, remarked Tan dryly. Experimental missile hell, snorted Johnner, comprehension dawning. Kokel, what would have happened if we hadn't shifted orbit to take aboard that G-boat? Kokel calculated a moment. It's our engines, he announced. Dead center. Johnner's blue eyes clouded ominously. Looks like they're playing for keeps this time, boys. The Brotherhood of Spacemen is an exclusive club. Any captain, astrogator, or engineer is likely to be well known to his colleagues, either personally or by reputation. The ship's doctor psychologist is in a different category. Most of them sign on for a few runs for the adventure of it, as a means of getting back and forth between planets without paying the high cost of passage or to pick up even more money than they can get from lucrative planet-bound practice. Donner did not know Serge the Radiant Hope's doctor. Neither Tan nor Kokel had ever heard of him, but Serge appeared to know his business well enough, and was friendly enough. It was Serge's first trip, and he was very interested in the way the ship operated. He nosed into every corner of it and asked a hundred questions a day. You're as inquisitive as a cadet spaceman, Serge, Johnner told him on the twenty-fifth day out. Everybody knew everyone else well by then, which meant that Johnner and Kokel, who had served together before, had become acquainted with Tan and Serge. "'There's a lot to see and learn about space, Captain,' said Serge. He was a young fellow, with fair hair and an easy grin. 
Think I could go outside? If you keep the lifeline hooked on, the suits have magnetic shoes to hold you to the hull of the ship, but you can lose your footing. Thanks, said Serge. He touched his hand to his forehead and left the control deck. Johnner, near the end of his eight-hour duty shift, watched the dials. The red light showing the inner airlock door was open blinked on. It blinked off, and then the outer airlock indicator went on and off. A shadow fell across Johnner briefly. He glanced at the port and reached for the microphone. Careful, and don't step on any of the ports, he warned Serge. Magnetic souls won't hold on them. I'll be careful, sir, answered Serge. No one but a veteran spaceman would have noticed the faint quiver that ran through the ship, but Johnner felt it. Automatically, he swung his control chair and his eyes swept to the bank of dials. At first, he saw nothing. The outer lock light blinked on and off, then the inner lock indicator. That was Serge coming back inside. Then Johnner noted that the hand on one dial rested on zero. Above the dial was the word, Acceleration. His eyes snapped to the radio controls. The atomic pile levers were still at their proper calibration. The dials above them said the engines were working properly. The atomic tug was still accelerating, but passengers and cargo were in freefall. Swearing, Johnner jerked at the levers to pull out the piles aboard the tug. A blue flash flared across the control board, momentarily blinding him. Johnner recoiled, only his webbed safety belt preventing him from plummeting from the control chair. He swung back anxiously to the dials, brushing futilely at the spots that swam before his eyes. He breathed a sigh of relief. The radio controls had operated. The atomic engines had ceased firing. Tentatively, cautiously, he reversed the lever. There was no blue flash this time but neither did the dials quiver. He swore. Something had burned out in the radio controls. He couldn't reverse the tug. He punched the general alarm button viciously, and the raucous clangor of the bell sounded through the confines of the ship. One by one, the other crew members popped up to the control deck from below. He turned the controls over to Kokel. Take readings on that damn tug, Johnner ordered. I think our cable broke. Don, let's go take a look. When they got outside, they found about a foot of the one-inch cable still attached to the ship. The rest of it, drawn away by the tug before Johnner could cut acceleration, was out of sight. Can it be welded, Ton? It can, but it'll take a while, replied the engineer slowly. First we'll have to reverse that tug and get the other end of that brake. Damn, and the radio control's burnt out. I tried to reverse it before I sounded the alarm. Ton, how fast can you get those controls repaired? Great space exclaimed Ton softly. Without seeing it, I'd say at least two days, Johnner. Those controls are complicated as hell. They re-entered the ship. Coco was working at his diagrams, and Serge was looking over his shoulder. Johnner took a heat gun quietly from the rack and pointed it at Serge. You'll get below, mister, he commanded grimly. You'll be handcuffed to your bunk from here on out. Sir, I, I don't understand, stammered Serge. Like hell you don't. You cut that cable, Johnner accused. Serge started to shrug, but he dropped his eyes. They, they paid me, he said in a low tone. They paid me a thousand solars. What good would a thousand dollars do you when you're dead, Serge? Dead of suffocation and drifting forever in space. Serge looked up in astonishment. Why, you can still reach Earth by radio easy, he said. It wouldn't take long for a rescue ship to reach us. Chemical rockets have their limitations said Johnner coldly. And you don't realize what speed we've built up with steady acceleration. 
We'd head straight out of the system, and nothing could intercept us. If that tug had gotten too far before we'd noticed it was gone. He jabbed the white-faced doctor with the muzzle of the heat gun. Get below, he ordered. I'll turn you over to space control at Mars. When Serge had left the control deck, John returned to the others. His face was grave. That tug picked up speed before I could shut off the engines, after the cable was cut, he said. It's moving away from us slowly, and at a tangent. And solar gravity is acting on both bodies now. By the time we get those controls repaired, the drift may be such that we'll waste weeks maneuvering the tug back. I could jet out to the tug in a spacesuit, before it gets too far away, said Tan thoughtfully. But that wouldn't do any good. There's no way of controlling the engines at the tug. It has to be done by radio. If we get out of this, remind me to recommend that atomic ships always carry a spare cable, said Johnner gloomily. If we had one, we could splash them and hold the ship to the tug while the controls are repaired. That's right, exclaimed Johnner, brightening. Most of our cargo's cable. That 4,000-ton spool we're hauling back there is 6,000 miles of cable to lay a television network between the Martian cities. Television cable, repeated Tan doubtfully. Will that be strong enough? It's bound in Flonat, that new fluorine compound. It's strong enough to tow this whole cargo at a couple of G's. There's nothing aboard the ship that would cut a length off of it. A heat gun at full power wouldn't even scorch it. But we can unwind enough of it and block the spool. It'll hold the ship to the tug until the controls can be repaired. Then we can reverse the tug and weld the cable. You mean the whole six thousand miles of it's in one piece? demanded Tan in astonishment. That's not so much. The cable-laying steamer Domina carried three thousand miles in one piece to lay Atlantic cables in the early twentieth century. But how will we ever get four thousand tons in one piece down to Mars? asked Tan. No G-boat can carry that load, Johnner chuckled. Same way they got it up from Earth to the ship, he answered. They attached one end of it to the G-boat and sent it up to the orbit, then wound it up on a fast winch. Since the G-boat will be decelerating to Mars, the unwinding will have to be slowed or the cable would tangle itself all over Sirtis. Sounds like it's made to order, said Tan, grinning. I'll get into my spacesuit. You'll get to work on the radio controls, contradicted Johnner, getting up. That's something I can't do, and I can get into a spacesuit and haul a length of cable out to the tug. Kokel can handle the winch. Devit, the Atom Star Company's representative at Mars City, and Kruger of the Space Control Commission were waiting when the Radiant Hope's G-boat dropped down from the Phobos station and came to rest in a wash of jets. They rode out to the G-boat together in a commission ground car. Johnner emerged from the G-boat, following the handcuffed Surge. He's all yours, Johnner told Kruger, gesturing at Surge. You have my radio reports on the cable cutting, and I'll make my log available to you. Kruger put his prisoner in the front seat of the ground car beside him, and Johnner climbed in the back seat with Devit. I brought the crates of dyes for the ground car factory down this time, Johnner told Devit. We'll bring down all the loose cargo before shooting the television cable down. While they're unloading the G-boat, I wish you'd get the tanks refilled with hydrazine and nitric acid. I've got enough to get back up, but not enough for a round trip. What do you plan to do? asked Devit. He was a dark-skinned, long-faced man with a sardonic twist to his mouth. I've got to sign on a new ship's doctor to replace Surge. When the Marsward comes in, Mars Corp will have a dozen G-boats working around the clock to unload and reload her. With only one G-boat, we've got to make every hour count. We still have reaction mass to pick up on Phobos. Right, agreed David. You can take the return cargo up in one load, though. It's just twenty tons of Martian relics for the Solar Museum. Mars-to-Earth cargoes run light. At the administration building, 
Johnner took his leave of DeVete and went up to the Space Control Commission's personnel office on the second floor. He was in luck. On the board as applying for a Mars Earth run as ship's doctor psychologist was one name. Lana Eldon. He looked up the name in the Mars City directory and dialed into the city from a nearby telephone booth. A woman's voice answered. Is Lana Eldon there? asked Johnner. I'm Lana Eldon, she said. Johnner swore under his breath. A woman. But if she weren't qualified, her name would not have been on the commission board. The verbal contract was made quickly, and Johnner cut the commission monitor into the line to make it binding. That was done often when rival ships, even of the same line, were bidding for the services of crewmen. Blast-off time is 2100 tonight, he said, ending the interview. Be here. Johnner left the personnel office and walked down the hall. At the elevator, DeVeet and Kruger hurried out, almost colliding with him. Johnner, we've run into trouble, exclaimed DeVeet. Space fuels won't sell us any hydrazine and nitric acid to refuel the tanks. They say they have a new contract with Mars Corp that takes all their supply. Contract hell, snorted Johnner. Mars Corp owns space fuels. What can be done about it, Kruger? Kruger shook his head. I'm all for you. But space control has no jurisdiction, he said. If a private firm wants to restrict its sales to a franchise line, there is nothing we can do about it. If you had a franchise, we could force them to allot fuel on the basis of cargo handled, since Space Fuels has a monopoly here. But you don't have a franchise yet. Johnner scratched his gray head thoughtfully. It was a serious situation. The atom-powered Radiant Hope could no more make a planetary landing than the chemically-powered ships. Its power gave a low, sustained thrust that permitted it to accelerate constantly over long periods of time. To beat the powerful pull of planetary surface gravity, the terrific burst of quick energy from the streamlined G-boats, planetary landing craft, was needed. Eh, we can still handle it, Johnner said at last. With only twenty tons return cargo, we can take it up this trip. Add some large parachutes to that, DeVete. We'll shoot the end of the cable down by signal rocket out in the lowlands, and stop the winch when we've made contact, long enough to attach the rest of the cargo to the cable. Pull it down with the cable, and with Mars's low gravity, the parachutes will keep it from being damaged. But when Johnner got back to the landing field to check on unloading operations, his plan was smashed. As he approached the G-boat, a mechanic wearing an ill-concealed smirk came up to him. <laughs> Captain, looks like you sprung a leak in your fuel line, he said. All your hydrazines leaked out in the sand. Johnner swung from the waist and knocked the man flat. Then he turned on his heel and went back to the administration building to pay the ten-credit fine he would be assessed for assaulting a spaceport employee. The Space Control Commission's hearing room in Mars City was almost empty. The examiner sat on the bench, resting his chin on his hand as he listened to testimony. In the plaintiff's section sat Johnner, flanked by DeVeet and Lana Eldon. In the defense box were the Mars Corporation attorney and Captain Russo Bott of the Marsward 18. Kruger, seated near the rear of the room, was the only spectator. The Mars Corporation attorney had succeeded in delaying the final hearing more than a 42-day Martian month by legal maneuvers. Meanwhile, the Marsward 18 had blasted down to Phobos, and G-boats had been shuttling back and forth, unloading the vessel and reloading it for the return trip to Earth. When testimony had been completed, the examiner shuffled through his papers. He put on his spectacles and peered over them at the litigants. It is the ruling of this court, he said formally, that the plaintiffs have not presented sufficient evidence to prove tampering with the fuel line of the G-boat of the spaceship Radiant Hope. 
There is no evidence that it was cut or burned, but only that it was broken. The court must remind the plaintiffs that this could have been done accidentally through inept handling of cargo. Since the plaintiffs have not been able to prove their contention, this court of complaint has no alternative than to dismiss the case. The examiner arose and left the hearing room. Bot waddled across the aisle, puffing. Too bad, Johnner, he said. I don't like the stuff Mars Corp's pulling, and I think you know I don't have anything to do with it. I want to win, but I want to win fair and square. If there's anything I can do to help. Haven't got a spare G-boat in your pocket, have you? retorted Johnner with a rueful smile. Bot pulled at his jowls. Mars Word isn't carrying G-boats, he said regretfully. They all belong to the port, and Mars Corp's got them so tied up you'll never get a sniff of one. But if you want to get back to your ship, Johnner, I can take you up to Phobos with me, as my guest. Johnner shook his head. I figure on taking the Radiant Hope back to Earth, he said. But I'm not blasting off without cargo until it's too late for me to beat you on the run. You sure? This'll be my last ferry trip. The Marsward blasts off for Earth at 0300 tomorrow. No thanks, Rousseau. But I will appreciate your taking my ship's doctor, Dr. Eldon, up to Phobos. Done. Agreed, Bot. Let's go, Dr. Eldon. The G-boat leaves Marsport in two hours. Johnner watched Bot puff away, with the slender, white-clad brunette at his side. Bot personally would see Lana Eldon safely aboard the Radiant Hope, even if it delayed his own blast-off. Morosely, he left the hearing room with Devit. What I can't understand, said the latter, is why all this dirty work? Why didn't Marscorp just use one of their atom drive ships for the competition run? Because whatever ship is used on a competition run has to be kept in service on the franchised run, answered Johnner. Marscorp has millions tied up in hydrazine interests, and they're more interested in keeping an atomic ship off this run than they are in a Monopoly franchise. But they tie in together. If Marscorp loses the Monopoly franchise and Atom Star puts in Atom Drive ships, Marscorp will have to switch to Atom Drive to meet the competition. If we had a franchise, we could force Space Fuels to sell us hydrazine, said DeVete unhappily. Well, we don't. And at this rate, we'll never get one. Johnner and DeVete were fishing at the Mars City Recreation Center. It had been several weeks since the Marsward 18 blasted off to Earth with a full cargo, and still the atomic ship Radiant Hope rested on Phobos with most of her Mars-bound cargo still aboard, and still her crew languished at the Phobos space station, and still Johnner moved back and forth between Mars City and Marsport daily, racking his brain for a solution that would not come. How in space do you get 20 tons of cargo up to an orbit 5,800 miles out without any rocket fuel? He demanded of DeVete more than once. He received no satisfactory answer. The recreation center was a two-acre park that lay beneath the plastic dome of Mars City. Above them they could see swift-moving Phobos and distant Deimos among the other stars that powdered the night. In the park around them, colonists rode the amusement machines, canoed along the canal that twisted through the park or sipped refreshment at scattered tables. A dozen or more sat, like Johnner and DeVete, around the edge of the tiny lake, fishing. Devit's line tightened. He pulled in a streamlined, flapping object from which the light glistened wetly. Good catch, complimented Johnner. It's worth a full credit. Devit unhooked his catch and laid it on the bank beside him. It was a metal fish. Live fish were unknown on Mars. They paid for the privilege of fishing for a certain time, 
and any fish caught were sold back to the management at a fixed price, depending on size, to be put back into the lake. You're pretty good at it, said Johnner. That's your third tonight. It's all in the speed at which you reel in your line, explained David. The fish move at preset speeds. They're made to turn and catch a hook that moves across their path at a slightly slower speed than they're swimming. The management changes the speeds once a week to keep the fishermen from getting too expert. You can't beat the management, chuckled Johnner. But if it's a matter of matching orbital speeds to make contact, I ought to do pretty well when I get the hang of it. He cocked an eye up toward the transparent dome. Phobos had moved across the sky into Capricorn since he last saw her. His memory automatically ticked off the satellite's orbital speed. 1.32 miles a second. Speed in relation to planetary motion. Why go over that again? One had to have fuel first. Meanwhile, the Radiant Hope lay idle on Phobos, and his crew whiled away the hours at the space station inside the moon, their feet spinning faster than their heads. Now, that wasn't true on Phobos, because it didn't have a spin to impart artificial gravity, like the space stations around Earth. He sat up suddenly. David looked at him in surprise. Johnner's lips moved silently for a moment. Then he got to his feet. Where can I use a radio phone? he asked. One in my office, said David, standing up. Let's go, quick, before Phobos sets. They turned in their rods, David collecting the credits for his fish, and left the recreation center. When they reached the Atom Star Company's Martian office, Johnner plugged in the radio phone and called the Phobos space station. He got Tan. All of you get aboard, Johnner ordered. And have Coco call me. He signed off and turned to David. Can we charter a plane to haul our earthbound cargo out of Marsport? A plane? I suppose so. Where do you want to haul it? Cherax is as good as any other place, but I need a fast plane. I think we can get it. Mars Corp still controls all the airplanes, but the Mars government keeps a pretty strict finger on their planet-bound operations. They can't refuse a cargo haul without good reason. Just to play safe, have some friend of yours whom they don't know charter the plane in his name. They won't know it's us till we start loading cargo. Right, said David, picking up the telephone. I know just the man. Tow motors scuttled across the landing area at Marsport, shifting the cargo that had been destined for the Radiant Hope from the helpless G-boat to a jet cargo plane. Nearby, watching the operation, were Johnner and David, with the Marsport agent of Mars Air Transport Company. We didn't know Adamstar was the one chartering the plane until you ordered the G-boat cargo loaded on it, confessed the Mars Air agent. I see you and Mr. DeVete are signed up to accompany the cargo. You'll have to rent suits for the trip. We have to play it safe, and there's always the possibility of a forced landing. There are a couple of spacesuits aboard the G-boat that we'll want to take along, said Johnner casually. We'll just wear those instead. Okay. The agent spread his hands and shrugged. Everybody at Marsport knows about you bucking Marscorp, Captain. What you expect to gain by transferring your cargo to tracks is beyond me, but it's your business. An hour later, the chartered airplane took off with a thunder of jets. Aboard was the 20-ton cargo the Radiant Hope was supposed to carry home, plus some large parachutes. The Mars Air pilot wore a light suit with plastic helmet designed for survival in the thin, cold Martian air. Johnner and DeVete wore the bulkier spacesuits. Five minutes out of Marsport, Johnner thrust the muzzle of a heat gun in the pilot's back. Set it on automatic, strap on your parachute, and bail out, he ordered. We're taking over. The pilot had no choice. He went through the plane's airlock and jumped, helped by a hearty boost from Johnner. 
His parachute blossomed out as he drifted down toward the green Sirtis Major lowland. Johnner didn't worry about him. He knew the pilot's helmet radio would reach Marsport, and a helicopter would rescue him shortly. I don't know what you're trying to do, Johnner, said David apprehensively over his space helmet radio. But whatever it is, you'd better do it fast. They'll have every plane on Mars looking for us in half an hour. Let them look, and keep quiet a while, retorted Johnner. I've got some figuring to do. He put the plane on automatic, took off the spacesuit handhooks, and scribbled figures on a scrap of paper. He tuned in the plane's radio and called Kokel on Phobos. They talked to each other briefly in Martian. The darker green line of a canal crossed the green lowland below them. Good, there's Drosinus, muttered Johnner. Let's see, time 1424 hours, speed 660 miles an hour. Johnner boosted the jets a bit and watched the terrain. By Saturn, I almost overran it, he exclaimed. Devit, smash out those ports. Break out the ports, repeated Devit. That'll depressurize the cabin. That's right, so you better be sure your spacesuit's secure. Obviously puzzled, Devit strode up and down the cabin, knocking out its six windows with the handhooks of his spacesuit. Johnner maneuvered the plane gently and set it on automatic. He got out of the pilot's seat and strode to the right front port. Reaching through the broken window, he pulled in a section of cable that was trailing alongside. While the baffled Devit watched, he reeled it in until he brought up the end of it, to which was attached a fish-shaped finned metal missile. Johnner carried the cable end and the attached missile across the cabin and tossed it out the broken front port on the other side swinging it so that the seven-hundred-mile-an-hour slipstream snapped it back in through the rearmost port like a bullet. Pick it up and pass it out the right rear port, he commanded. We'll have to pass it to each other from port to port. The slipstream won't let us swing it forward and through. In a few moments, the two of them had worked the missile and the cable end to the right front port and in through it. Originating above the plane, it now made a loop through the four open ports. Johnner untied the missile and tied the end to the portion which came into the cabin making a bowline knot of the loop. David picked up the missile from the floor where Johnner had thrown it. Looks like a spent rocket shell, he commented. It's a signal rocket, said Johnner. The flare trigger was disconnected. He picked up the microphone and called the Radiant Hope on Phobos. We've hooked our fish, Kokel, he told the Martian and laid the mic aside. Means we'd better strap in, said Johnner, suiting the action to the words. You're in for a short trip to Phobos, David. Johnner pulled back slowly on the elevator control, and the plane began a shallow climb. At 700 miles an hour, it began to attain a height at which its broad wings, broader than those of any terrestrial plane, would not support it. I'm trying to decide, said David with forced calm, whether you flipped your helmet. Nope, answered Johnner. Trolling for those fish in Mars City gave me the idea. The rest was no more than an astrogation problem, like any rendezvous with a ship in a fixed orbit, which Coco could figure. Remember that 6,000-mile television cable the ship's hauling? Kokel just shot the end of it down to Mars' surface by signal rocket. We hooked on, and now he'll haul us up to Phobos. He's got the ship's engine hooked onto the cable winch. The jets coughed and stopped. The plane was out of fuel. It was on momentum. To be drawn by the cable, or snap it and fall. Impossible! cried Devit in alarm. Phobos' orbital speed is more than a mile a second. No cable can take the sudden difference in that in the speed we're traveling. When the slack is gone, it'll break. The slack's gone already. You're thinking of the speed of Phobos, at Phobos. At this end of the cable, we're like the head of a man in the control section of a space station, which is traveling slower than his feet because its orbit is smaller. But it revolves around the center in the same time. Look, 
Connor added. I'll put it in round numbers. Figure your cable as part of a radius of Phobos's orbit. Phobos travels at 1.32, but the other end of the radius travels at zero because it's at the center. The cable end, the Martian surface, travels at a speed in between, roughly 1,200 miles an hour, but it keeps up with Phobos's revolution. Since the surface of Mars itself rotates at 500 miles an hour, all I had to do was boost the plane up to 700 to match the speed of the cable end. That cable will haul a hell of a lot more than 20 tons, and that's all that's on it right now. By winching us up slowly, there'll never be too great a strain on it. David looked apprehensively out of the port. The plane was hanging sideways now, and the distant Martian surface was straight out the left-hand ports. The cable was holding. We can make the trip to Earth 83 days faster than the Mars word, said Johnner. They have only about 20 days start. It won't take us but a few days to make Phobos and get this cable and the rest of the cargo shot back to Mars. Atomstar will get its franchise, and you'll see all spaceships switching to the atomic drive within the next decade. How about this plane? asked Devit. We stole it, you know. You can hire a G-boat to take it back to Marsport, said Johnner with a chuckle. Pay Mars Air for the time in the broken ports, and settle out of court with that pilot we dropped. I don't think they'll send you to jail, Devit. He was silent for a few minutes. By the way, Devit, said Johnner then. Radio Adam started to buy some flow-night cable of their own and ship it to Phobos. Damned if I don't think this is cheaper than G-boats. There you go, Jim. Thank you so much. I'll put a link on to Wikipedia for Charles Fontenay. There's not much there. His novels include Modal, Target, Kipton and the Android, Kipton and the Override, Kipton and In Wonderland... So there you go, if you want some more Charles L. Fontenay, check out Gutenberg. That's where I found him. Next up is interview time. So I'm very proud today to have Mark Zickery on the phone. He, you know, this man has basically mapped out my childhood on, you know, through the television. I don't know if anyone can remember. I mean, we're going way, way back in Starships Overturned to the original shows when both myself and Kieran were on there. I mean, that's how, you know, a few years ago now. But Kieran rem- always mentioned, and he, he got me onto this kind of, this one particular show. It was called Far Beyond the Stars. And what, a, you know, what an episode of Deep Space Nine this was. And then I get an email a few weeks ago, or uh, quite a while ago now. And, you know, Mark came on the phone and, or the email and says, "Oh, I was the I was the gentleman that wrote that story, and, and I've also been on and I've also done Star Trek: Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Friday the Thirteenth, everything." And when I got that email, I was like knocked over. And honestly, I'm so proud to have Mark on the other side of the line. Mark, are you there? Oh yes, I am, Tony. I, I'm I'm equally happy to be on with you because I love Starship so far. So far, I listen regularly to the show. It's it's just it's just a great show, and, and you deserve the Hugo. I'm glad you won it. Oh, but hey, honestly, thank Mark. Thank you so much for coming on. You know, like I say, to be in this industry, you know, it's exciting, anyways. Especially when you you get to speak to someone that like yourself that's done. Every, you know, you've you've been there all over. And we're just talking before you know when we kind of kicked off. You even done like the He Man, you know, right back then. Yeah. Yes, yes. Well, well, the funny thing is, when I was a kid, I grew up in Los Angeles, and uh, I was very, very lucky because um, when I was, uh, you know, a child, I watched Twilight Zone and Outer Limits and Star Trek, the original versions of those three shows. And uh, when I was uh, uh, like around twelve years old, a friend of mine actually took me on the set of the original Star Trek. So I was there for the shooting of the last episode of Star Trek ever shot, Turnabout Intruder, and it was just amazing to go to Paramount and and just see this, uh, you know, see them shooting this episode. 
And then uh, they came out with a book called The Making of Star Trek, which was the first book I'd ever read about how TV shows were made. And I started reading this book, and I thought, I was 13 at the time, and I thought, maybe I could make a go of it. Maybe I could actually do that for a living. So, uh, so I, I went to UCLA as an art student, but when I was 19, uh, I went to the Clarion Writers Workshop, which I'm, I'm sure you've heard of Clarion. You know, it was, it's the leading science fiction writing workshop in, in the country. And six famous science fiction writers were our teachers, and there were 25 students. And, um, and the, the teachers were, I mean, it was a who's who. It was Samuel R. Delaney, uh, Joe Haldeman, Gene Wolfe, uh, Damon Knight, Kate Wilhelm, and um, uh, who was the sixth? Did I mention Roger Zelazny? Those were our teachers. And, um, and the students in my class included Robert Crace and Kim Stanley Robinson and uh, Greg Frost. So, I mean, these were, you know, <laughs> you know it was really a fast track. And uh, Damon bought my first short story uh, when I was 19. It was a story I wrote when I was 18, actually. And um, and then I came back. I graduated UCLA, and I decided to work in TV. So I wrote the Twilight Zone Companion to learn how to do television. So by the time I was 22, I was writing the Twilight Zone Companion, and by the time I was about 22 or 23, I was writing for for television. So that's uh, that began the journey. I mean, like you say there, when your pedigree, just just even them names you mentioned in Clarion, do you know, like in Starship Sova terms, you know, the kind of the, the science fiction, they are like the, the greats there, and to be taught by them. Yes. And you know, like you say, just a couple of weeks ago, Greg Frost was one of the my kind of speakers at my little kind of writers workshop there. Now you know, so yeah. now he's you know going on, and it's just it's an amazing pedigree you've had there of kind of lessons you've been taught by you know people. It was it was phenomenal. Yeah, it was phenomenal. Oh, thank you, thank you, Tony. I mean, it was well, but but also growing up here in LA, I got to meet, I got to go to conventions, and I, I remember when I was ten, I heard Ray Bradbury speak at a library, and Ray was talking about um, you know writing as a as a career, and he's he's now a good friend of mine, and it was just like phenomenally inspiring. And then and you and you were mentioning Far Beyond the Stars, and and the inspiration with that was that when I was uh, when I got back from Clarion, Ted Sturgeon, Theodore Sturgeon, was writing, was uh, teaching a class at UCLA, an extension class. And um, <clears throat> and I took the class. You, you, as an undergraduate, you weren't allowed to take the adult education classes, but I thought, uh, no, I'm not going to lose this opportunity. So I took that class, and Ted Sturgeon became one of my mentors. And uh, and I was just so, um, I mean, he, he, he wrote Amok Time and, and uh, Shirley for Star Trek. And he, of course, he's a great short story writer and novelist. And um, and but, but the fascinating thing was I was seeing that he was living this sort of impoverished life at that point in Silver Lake, and yet he'd written these amazing sort of you know galaxy-spanning stories. And I realized that there wouldn't be shows like Star Trek or, or Star Wars or any of those things if not for guys like Sturgeon and and and, uh, and Harlan Ellison and Asimov and Heinlein who laid track. So when I came up with the idea for Far Beyond the Stars, I wanted to really show that world and, and pay tribute to those guys because the general audience that loved loved science fiction had no idea about the where it came from. Well, that's that was that. I think that's what you know you captured in that story, and I don't know if like, if anyone can remember. I'm interested to find out as well, Mark. Was did you write the story, and, and it was it was a story, or was it wrote as a TV script? Well, well, here's what happened. It was really it was really a very strange genesis because, uh, <clears throat> um, you know, I've I've written hundreds of hours of network television as well as novels and you know etc. You know, films and so forth. And um, the way it used to work in TV is you you could pitch to a lot of different shows as a freelancer, or you'd be on staff on a show. For, so, for instance, I was a story editor on Friday the Thirteenth series, but on a lot of other shows like Forever Night and you know Next Gen and and so forth, I was a freelancer. Babylon Five when I wrote for them. Um, so uh, so with DS Nine with DS Nine, I pitched that story. 
uh, among with other stories to the, to the writing staff. And Hans Beimler was one of the writer producers on the show. I'd, I'd worked for Hans on staff on other shows, and it didn't sell. It didn't sell initially. And um, I, I think my original title of, of the story was um, something like um, "Amazing, Astounding, Fantastic." You know, I was using the titles of those magazines as the, as the title of this, and um, <clears throat> and it didn't sell. So a year later, <clears throat> I'd been hired as a writer producer on Sliders, and Hans calls me. And he says, I've got great news for you. Um, you've just sold that story. And because I, I pitched it, uh, I'd worked out the beginning, middle, and end, though it had a somewhat different ending. And um, uh, I said, Great timing, Hans. I'm, I'm, I'm on sliders. You know, I'm, I'm really slammed. And he said, Well, you know, um, we've, we've got to get together and, you know, and talk about the story. So um, I was writing two episodes of sliders back to back. We were under, really under the gun. And so I drove over the hill from Universal, where my office was, to uh, Paramount. And there was a restaurant next to Paramount, I think it was Nicodell's. And I sat down over a lunch with the entire writing staff of Deep Space Nine. So it was Ron Moore and, and Hans and, uh, and Ira Bear, who ran the writing staff. Just a bunch of writers. I think Brian Fuller may have been there. And um, terrific writing staff. And we just started batting around the story. And one of the things that became clear, they all knew I was the author of The Twilight Zone Companion. They were all huge fans of the book and huge fans of Twilight Zone. And they said, well, we want this to be as much like a Twilight Zone episode as possible. So we started batting it around. And um, and it was uh, and it came into shape very very quickly just over lunch and so that weekend I wrote the outline for the uh, for Far Beyond the Stars and it was very similar to the aired version it was you know Cisco goes back and finds himself back in in time as a science fiction writer with a totally different identity and all of the Deep Space Nine characters are humans in that episode they're back there uh, Armin Shimmerman is a very good friend of mine and he was thrilled with the idea that the viewers would see his face for the first time on that show and um, and one of the Strong inspirations for that story was um, Harlan Ellison is, n- is another friend of mine and, and, and a huge inspiration. I mean, City on the Edge of Forever is my favorite Star Trek episode from the original show. And, um, and Harlan had done this audio tape <clears throat> where he just talked for an hour about writing for the pulp magazines. And one of the things he talked about was that the, c- the covers would be commissioned first and then you'd try and pitch an idea for the, for the, that would match the uh, the cover and Harlan Harlan's example was there was this hideous cover that they painted of a giant grasshopper looking over the top of a building onto a rooftop where a, where a woman was sunbathing in a bikini and he had to act as though it was a terrific <laughs> terrific idea for a story and he actually wrote that story I've actually got that that magazine so Harlan talked about that and I thought well so then you could have the image of Deep Space Nine of the station um, be on a magazine cover in the fifties and then have a character writing about that future and so all of these things were grist for my mill and so when I started outlining uh, far beyond the stars, I actually called Harlan and I asked him further questions about that period, and uh, and he was very very um, very helpful. And um, so then I turned in the outline. It was a very strong outline. We we all knew that this was going to be a, a great great show, one of the real landmark shows of Star Trek, because it was the first one that ever overtly addressed race. And um, and interestingly enough, the original character was it was going to happen to was was Jake's um, was was Ben's uh, son. Because uh, because he was a writer on the show, but then we said no, it'll be stronger if it's if it's um, you know Cisco himself. And Avery Brooks was was going to direct it, and it was going to be airing on Sweeps Week, which is the big week in the Nielsen ratings here, where they air their you know their best shows to get the highest rating. The problem with that was that it was a very tight production schedule. So then uh, Hans called and said, uh, well you know we, uh, he and he and I were going to write the script because I was on Sliders and I was you know a writer producer and I had my obligations. But I really wanted to write that script for Far Beyond the Stars, so I called Ira Bear and I said, uh, um, "I really want to write this because uh, you know I knew I knew it was going to be a great script." And he said, "Well, if you quit your job on Sliders, I'll let you write this script." And I actually considered it for for a few minutes, and uh, 
And but I was writing two episodes back to back on sliders. We were really under the gun. I couldn't leave them in the in the lurch. So I said, okay, we'll go with God. And uh, because I knew that Iron and and Hans Beimler were terrific writers, and I knew they'd do a great job working from the outline that I that I that I'd written. So uh, there were there were some minor changes um, in my in my version. Um, the Wharf character back in the fifties, he was a boxer rather than a baseball player. So I was thinking more like sort of the Great White Hope kind of. Uh, template and um, but the basics were very much the same and the only, the only the only other major change was that originally Armin was going to play the, the the editor I was thinking more of like Horace Gold uh, of Galaxy and uh, and Rene Aubergenois was going to be sort of a liberal blacklisted writer from New York who was now writing science fiction was sort of slumming um, but then they said well if if Armin was the if Armin was the editor um, you know, being a Jewish a Jewish guy, it might seem anti-Semitic, like the idea of, of Jewish guys, you know, who are, who are racist against black people, and that was a, that was a point well taken. And so, uh, so we changed it, and and then made made Rene Aubergenois the editor, and that was much more along the sort of John John W. Campbell kind of kind of lines. So, uh, but it's, it still worked great. Well, you know, it's, it's what you say there. It it captured them, you know, because these are difficult, you know, themes you've got in there, race and everything like that, you know, especially in that kind of boiling pot, 1950s yes. America. And like you say, that was one of the kind of the things that, you know, especially when you wrote that email and says, oh, Tony, you know, that I was responsible for that. It was like, ho, ho. But it's not just, <laughs> you know, it's not just that. You've been, a couple of years ago, haven't you been up there? Or you, you were nominated, is that right, for a Hugo and Nebula Award? That's right. That's right. And and before I before I mention that, I, I want to want to tell you one other great thing about Far Beyond the Stars that was just a writer's dream, which was the day they were shooting that. They actually um, they were shooting an episode of my my one of my episodes of Sliders that I'd written the same day as they were shooting Far Beyond the Stars. So I got to have, have the experience of two studios shooting my work simultaneously. <laughs> so what what I what I did what I did that day was I drove I took a picture with the Sliders cast and then drove over the hill and took a, and went on the set of Far Beyond the Stars and took a photo with the cast of that. So I have two photos of me in the exact same clothes with those two different casts, and uh, and it was just wonderful. It was a wonderful experience watching them shoot it and. Uh, and I, I just love that. So, so that was. I, I'm very proud of it. And and I and I was really glad that I was able to show show people what that world was like because it it was so so important for all of us. So, but and the, but then to answer your question, uh, in terms of the Hugo, yeah. Well, you know, I've been a huge Star Trek fan my entire life, and I had this um, hilarious and wonderful experience, which was, uh, you know, after writing for all the networks and you know all these different science fiction shows, I always wanted to direct. But I never got the chance because whenever I was on a, sh- on a network show writing and producing, I would say to my boss, the executive producer, I'd like to direct. And they'd always say, well, next year, next year. So, um, but, I, but I had my eye on directing as well, and, uh, even though I hadn't directed anything since, uh, since high school. So, um, so I was on a panel at a science fiction convention, a Star Trek panel, and uh, all these different people from different incarnations of Trek were on the panel with me. And this is just when Enterprise was winding down, and the fans, of course, had not been uh, that pleased with Enterprise. And um, and someone in the audience asked what the future of Star Trek was, and this was just before J.J. announced he was going to do the uh, the movie. And so Walter Koenig was on the panel with me. He played Chekhov on the original Star Trek, and he and he he, he answered he, the answer he gave in terms of the future of Star Trek was so peculiar that I sat with him for an hour after the after the panel. I said, "Okay, tell me all about this." What he told me about was that in upstate New York there were a group of Star Trek fans. Uh, principally among them James Cawley, who was a professional Elvis impersonator, and he was such a big fan that he had built full-size replicas of all the original Star Trek sets from blueprints that William Ware Tice, the costume designer, had given him. He had built full-size replicas, replicas of all the Star Trek ship, uh, of all the Star Trek sets, 
And along with um, Doug Drexler, who was doing effects on, on Enterprise and DS9 and so forth, and another uh, fellow who was a, a, a TV news director, they were shooting their own Star Trek episodes, putting them on the Internet, and um, getting more, a larger audience than Enterprise was getting on, on the Paramount Network. So, <laughs> and Walter was about to star in one as Chekhov, and Dorothy Fontana, DC Fontana, whose story edited and wrote for the original Star Trek, was going to be writing it. So I was amazed by this. <laughs> so that night I went online, and I, it, it, it was called Star Trek New Voyages. Now it's called Star Trek Phase 2. And I watched one of their episodes, which was a sequel to The Doomsday Machine, which had originally starred um, William Wyndham, and they'd gotten William Wyndham to reprise his role as Commodore Decker, and it was great. It was so much fun, and the effects were terrific, and the sets were great, and the costumes were great. And I realized there was opportunity there uh, be, you know, for me to direct as well as write. And um, 30 years earlier, um, more than 30 years actually, they were going to bring Star Trek back as a TV show, Paramount was, and it was called Star Trek Phase 2, and they, built, they, they recruited the entire cast except for Leonard Nimoy, and Roddenberry was producing it, and uh, they spent a year building sets and buying scripts. And my friend Michael Reeves, who wrote for Next Gen, and he's an Emmy winner, and uh, writes Star Wars novels now, <coughs> he had uh, come up with this great Sulu story. Uh, and, and, but then Paramount decided not to do that show. They did the Star Trek movies instead. So Michael never even outlined that story, never wrote it. So I remembered this story, and I called Michael, because he was a dear friend, and we'd written together in the past. And I said, hey, you want to write this story? And uh, with me, and I contacted the boys in upstate New York, and I said, you know, we, we wrote for Next Gen, and we'd love to do this, and I'd like to direct it. And they said, great. <laughs> so, I, so I spent six months building a production team from my friends in Hollywood, you know, Oscar winners and Emmy winners. And uh, I went to George Takei, and he agreed to do it. And uh, we shot it in upstate New York and here in L.A. and one day in, New in uh, Orlando with the effects team, 12 days shooting in, in total, and then a year of post-production. And it's called World Enough in Time, and it's on my website, zikri.com, and people can watch it. And it was nominated, as you said, for the Hugo and the Nebula, so it was very gratifying. Well, that's what I was just going to about to say. It's, it is on your website, so anybody you know comes over. I'll put a link on the site, so you can pop over to Mark's site, and it's there to watch. And I'm actually I'm halfway through it there now, Mark. And I just it's like it's like the old you know it's it's like Star Trek. It's like this hidden episode you've never watched before. And you think oh, you've just stumbled over one that they you know, and it's all there, and it's it's fantastic. Well, thanks. Well, I, it's it's I was thrilled to do it, and I, and I'm I think I'm prouder of that episode than anything else I've done on TV, even though I've. You know, as I say, I've, I've, I've sold over a hundred scripts, and, and all the other ones were to the networks and the studios. But with World Enough and Time, um, you know, we built that entirely by hand, and I, I, Michael and I treated it exactly as if it were a network show. And it has 700 effect shots; it's huge. And now that I'm doing features, now that I'm writing and directing Fugitive Space, which is this big science fiction movie, it was an extremely good learning ground to do World Enough and Time. And uh, and there's an actress that I met who I cast as Sulu's daughter. I gave him another daughter, a daughter named Alana in that episode that he, he's marooned on an alien planet and has a whole family and all sorts of stuff and uh, um, and, sh and the actress was an actress named Christina Moses and she's phenomenal she's the, the best actress I've ever worked with and after I did World Enough in Time J.J. Abrams saw the episode uh, and he put her on a talent deal she's, she's that good so uh, it, was, it was great it was just great Was, was doing that Star Trek that, that one for you was it a total big learning curve, you know, getting yourself into the director's side of things, or or was it just actually the, so much work in every bit? Because you, you seem to be doing every part of them jobs there, you know, directing, producing, <laughs> writing. Did you take too much on, or was it just like a, a real love for the for doing it? 
Well, well, when I was shooting it, my mantra to myself was, "I am made of iron, and nothing will stop me." <laughs> uh, so it, it was, it, I, you know, I, and I really had to do that because the, the days were crushingly long. Uh, but you know, in 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 total, four hundred people worked on that episode. Uh, fortunately, uh, eighteen years ago, uh, I, my friends in Hollywood were feeling extremely depressed and bummed out, and so I started a roundtable of writers and directors and actors and producers. Uh, that meets every Thursday here in L.A., and it was just to create a community, and it started with six people, and it grew to over a 1,000. And uh, so I, I leaned very heavily on my roundtable, and the Star Trek fans who were part of Star Trek New Voyages also really put their shoulder to the wheel. So it was, uh, uh, it was really a group effort, but uh, my wife, fortunately my wife also executive produced it with me, and she, uh, she's a writer, director, producer, and she's a very good director, so she was uh, right by my side the entire time. So if I want a certain effect from my actors that I, uh, I would say to Elaine uh, well, how do I get this, how do I do this and she'd talk to the actors and we'd get, we'd get the moment that we needed so it was, uh, it was just great This is going to be a horrible question for you Mark but if you had to pick one camp where would, you, where would your loyalties lie directing, producing or writing? Definitely writing, definitely writing Every, everything else that I do is to service the writing, to make sure that the writing that the end product is what I, I see in my mind, you know, it's uh, uh, in television, years ago when I was very young, I was friends with uh, um, uh, Woody Allen's uh, producer, uh, Charlie Joffe, and I said to Charlie, in television and film, where's the power? And he said, in, in television, it's the writer-producer hyphenate, ideally the writer-executive producer, that's what's called the showrunner, the guys like Joss Whedon or Roddenberry or Serling. Um, in, in film, it's the writer-director, so that'd be, you know, all, those, all the writer-directors who, who are in cinema. So that told me where I needed to go in terms of um, protecting the work. And so in television, I'm a writer-executive producer. In film, I'm a writer-director. And I go between books and TV and film because, again, my great uh, mentors and, and idols were guys like Rod Serling and Ray Bradbury. And uh, so it's very funny. With Ray, I see Ray every, every few months. I, I go, and go to his house, and we hang out, and, he, and we talk. And at one point, I said to Ray... Um, I just realized what business you're in. I said it's it's not writer. I said you're in the you're in the Ray Bradbury business. And he said that's exactly right. And so the the trick is you create work that's unique to you that that no one else could come up with, and then you you protect it and you make sure it gets out to the audience the way you envision it. That's how you how you uh, how you're able to, to do it. And and certainly Ted Sturgeon and Harlan and all these guys that are such phenomenal writers. Um, you know they they were my inspiration. What's, t tell us what you're doing now, then, because you've sent us over a little script that you've, you're working on now. What's all this about? Yes. <laughs> well, you know, it's, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's funny because, um, you know, some people in, in, in Hollywood can be very arrogant, and, and Hollywood's very hierarchical, and I, I hate that. I hate that about Hollywood because my attitude is I tend to treat everyone equally, and I'm, 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 I'm very, I tend to be very um, friendly. <laughs> So, so I treat everyone the same, whether they're an Oscar winner or just starting out or anybody. So, um, so what happened with that was it, it, is that um, I went to Comic Con, which is this enormous convention here in in, in Southern California that happens once a year. I'm sure you've heard of it. it draws over a hundred thousand people. I, I think of it sort of a, as a mix between Woodstock and Auschwitz, and um, it's just it's just a re it's a real sensory overload. And um, I went to I went to Comic Con and I was at a Writers Guild party. And coincidentally, someone the night before had been watching the Blu-ray of Planet of the Apes, and they'd been watching the documentary on the making of Planet of the Apes, and I'm on that documentary. Uh, it's uh, because Rod Serling co-wrote Planet of the Apes, and this, this young guy who'd watched this documentary was a movie producer. His name is Roger Lay Jr., and he recognized me at this party, and he came up to me, and he said, uh, you're Mark Zickrey, aren't you? And I said, yes, <laughs> guilty. And uh, he, um, he had just done a feature with Ray Bradbury, and so we started talking, and I really liked him, 
And uh, a few days later, we had lunch, and we started talking about, well, let's do a project together. Let's do something. Because he was doing a documentary on He-Man, coincidentally, which I wrote for. And uh, we started talking about what might be good for us to work together on. And I just sort of pulled out all these ideas. And I had this idea about, um, uh, well, Fugitive Space, the basic notion is that we've discovered an alien race on another planet, and they're sort of like evolved um, jellyfish. They're, They're poisonous to the touch, and they live in a methane atmosphere. And we started doing a prisoner swap where um, our worst prisoners go to their world, their worst prisoners come here because you can't escape the building. If you go outside the building, the, the air is toxic. It's, 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 it's basically somewhat inspired by a, an episode of Sliders that I wrote called Slide Cage that was about, again, a prison on, an, on a, a, different, a, a very different earth where the atmosphere is toxic, so you're stuck in the building. And, um, and, this, and the Fugitive Space is about a, a prison break that erupts on the space station that's the halfway point, the handoff point. So... Um, so I, uh, I I wrote it over the holidays. I outlined it in four weeks, wrote it in two, and I just did the the rewrite in two and a half weeks. And uh, and so Rogers aboard, Chris Wyatt who produced uh, Napoleon Dynamite is aboard as a producer. My friend Ian McCaig who designed Darth Maul and Queen Amidala, and he was the lead character designer on, on the last three Star Wars films is aboard as a designer. William Stout who designed Pan's uh, Labyrinth, the creatures. Uh, is aboard. We're reaching out to Ron Cobb, who was an artist on Alien and Aliens and Star Wars. So we're just basically building our team. So I'll be directing it in the fall. So uh, so it's uh, it's great fun. It's a it's a big ambitious movie, but uh, fun. that's fine with me. So have you got have you got the funding and everything for that? And we will see this on the screens. Well, here's how it works now. Um, basically, I've just finished the script. We have concept art. So, and Armin Shimmerman, by the way, is going to be in it, and I've also written a role for George Decay, and uh, so it's it's great fun to to to, to play with your friends, and um, so so Roger and Chris will now go out and using their sources who have financed their movies previously, they'll raise the the budget. Fortunately, it's a, it's a low budget; it's around three to five million dollars. So with these guys and their contacts, it should be no problem getting that money, and so. Um, so we're, we're sort of scheduling it and planning it, and, and we've also we also had lunch recently with Mike Akuda, who was a designer on Star Trek: The Next Generation, and uh, you know so he'll uh, you know he'll, he's also advising. Hopefully, we'll, we'll we'll be be part of it too. He's a he's a brilliant brilliant man. Mark, do you ever look like right in the future? I know you kind of your focus is right now on on that story and, and that production, but have you got things that are coming in the future and maybe say two or three years down the line, there's something going to happen? Yes, absolutely. Um, well, I'm also doing a book with Guillermo del Toro, the director. Um, Guillermo has incredible notebooks uh, with sketches, all sorts of things. So it's going to be a big coffee table art book, and I'm, it's, it'll have a book-length interview, but a conversation between me and Guillermo about all this material. So I'm doing that, and I have ideas for TV shows. I've, I'm, I'm writing another feature, a script called Furious, that's sort of a science fiction thriller. And, and I'm writing a book about my father so, as well, So you know, because I, I also write some things about my family. I wrote a book about my mom. Uh, last year and and so forth. So I just I always have a lot of projects in the hopper. I'm I'm always bursting with ideas. So <laughs> so you know the, again it's following Ray's template, Ray Bradbury, because Ray writes three hours a day, five days a week, uh, and and he's done that for over seventy years. He's writing at least two books a year. Even now he's ninety years old. And so uh, so my my goal is to stay productive and keep going. And uh, and so far so good. I haven't run out of, out of ideas yet. I remember the time, it was probably about a year ago now, I got the chance to phone Ray Bradbury just to put these 15 basic questions to him. And the conversation must have just lasted two minutes. But it was you know, like <laughs> two minutes of my life that will just no one will ever take away from us. Do you know what I mean? It was just, yeah. you know, what a... God, this is, like you say, this is Ray Bradbury. It's, it's an industry. You know what I mean? It's not just the guys in the industry there. And it was just I know. fantastic. 
He's, he's a phenomenal man, and just it's such an honor to know him. And, and well, one of the projects I've been I've been trying to get off the ground is um, several years ago I realized <clears throat> because of the Martian Chronicles is one of my favorite books. I realized that there were over 20 Mars stories that Ray wrote that aren't in the Martian Chronicles but follow the same chronology. So I put them in order, and I started interviewing Ray about them and uh, and in detail about how he came up with them. And one of them is Dark They Were in Goldeneye, which is a great story. But there's over 20 of them. Some of them were published, m- m- some of them were not. And uh, I, I, initially I was going to do a book called Lost Mars, but then as it evolved, uh, it became a miniseries. And so I outlined this entire eight-hour miniseries based on those 20 stories. And so we're hoping to do that in the future. Um, it was It's just a wonderful story. And, and it, it, again, it parallels Martian Chronicles, but is a very different story because the, the specifics of it are different. And Ray wrote most of these stories as he was writing the Martian Chronicles because he wrote a bunch of stories exploring similar themes, and then he selected about half of them for the Martian Chronicles. So, um, so Ray and I were talking about that in detail, and uh, I'm going to be seeing him in fact this week. And uh, you know, it's just uh, it's just it's just so great to be working with people that you just just idolize. Did uh, did Mark? Did you see by any chance that? Um video that was going around, it was probably last year, about Rhea Bradbury, you know, that, I know the, the certain title of, it was F. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Did, well, the funny, yeah. I was going to say, well, did, funny, he, did he get to see it by any chance, or? Well, yes, it's very funny, well, what happened was, yeah, it was this girl singing a song about, you know, Bleep Me, Ray Bradbury, and it was very affectionate, very, very, you know, um, uh, um, 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 I was going to say dirty, but it's, it was just charming. It was totally charming. And so when I and a lot of my friends emailed me this, the link to that. So as soon as I saw saw it and was delighted by it, I emailed her and I said, "Would you like to meet Ray Bradbury?" And she, of course, said, "Yes, absolutely." So I connected her up with uh, with with uh, friends of Ray's who then arranged a meeting. And she actually went there and met Ray Bradbury and showed him the uh, the video, and he was totally charmed by it. And because uh, he's you know he's no prude, and uh, and it was. It was it was just great, and you know, it's, and well, you know, it, the funny thing is though, you know, Ray's mentor, Ray's great mentor, and it was someone that Ray, that Rod Sterling patterned himself after was a, as well, was a writer named Norman Corwin. Nor- Norman was this huge writer on on radio uh, here in the states. He was a contemporary of Edward R. Murrow, and he uh, he also wrote the movie Lust for Life, which is about Van Gogh. It starred Kirk Douglas, and Norman was a great mentor to Ray, and was instrumental in the sale of the Martian Chronicles and the Illustrated Man. And uh, and interestingly enough, Norman is still alive. He's a hundred, and uh, so it's fascinating to have these friends and these mentors. Um, you know, and and again, I learned from them. And one, uh, you mentioned, you know, when you asked a moment ago, Tony, what I was working on. Another thing I've been working on is a, a TV project called Magic Time, and this is again very inspired by Ray. And it's the basic premise is all the machines in the world stop running, and magic comes back. And uh, I did it as a two-hour two hour TV pilot with my wife. We wrote it, and then I sold it as a trilogy of novels. It hit the bestseller list. We just did the radio play with Armin Shimmerman, and we, sh- we shot a trailer with, with Armin as well. Now we're coming back to TV, and we're going to do it as a web series and then as a TV series. So, you know, and the, the people who run, there's a TV show called The Ghost Whisperer, and those people are, are talking to me about doing it with me, partnering with me. So, again, you know, I just pursue what, it, what enthuses me, what, what interests me, and, uh, and then I bring my, my friends aboard to... Uh, to, to collaborate with me so it's it's really really great fun you mentioned there Mark about the internet and you know the, the way things can take off on the internet is that a, an avenue that you like to kind of focus on as well yes absolutely and then then the challenge with it particularly in science fiction is to just find the financing to be able to afford it and so for instance with Magic Time I think what we're going to do is shoot that two hour pilot as a web series and uh, but the, uh, there's a there's a young man I've just met named uh 
Trey Stokes, who's a director and special effects guy, and he, uh, I think, he, and he did the trailer for us, the Magic Time trailer. So we'll, I think, be working with him on on that. He was the a, a, a lead special effects guy on the Abyss. He's got great credits, and um, you know. So again, it's just finding the way of doing it because it all, like for instance, with World Enough in Time, that costs very little uh, money, even though it looks like if if I'd done World Enough in Time, the Star Trek episode. Uh, on the networks, uh, it would have cost minimally five million dollars. We did it for under a hundred thousand, and so, but that's because you know I had four hundred people working essentially for free because they loved Star Trek and and they loved the script. Fortunately, and uh, you know, and it all worked out. But but it all boils down to economics and finding the way to afford it. But uh, but that's not something that I shy away from. I'm I'm eager to do it. I'm I, you know, it well you know it's funny because now with 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 a with Final Cut on a Mac and with HD cameras that you can buy at the corner. You know, big box store and uh, <clears throat> and the internet. You're good to go. You don't need a studio or a network any, anymore to reach hundreds of thousands or millions of people. Uh, uh, it's been a great democratizer of uh, of media. Oh, I think exactly as well, and especially you know, you can you can build up this presence on the internet. You know, and that's one of the kind of things that I loved. You know, love from the kind of start of Starship Sova was trying to build up Starship Sova the internet way. Do you know what I mean? Because, yes, you can yes. put an advert in a newspaper or anything, but to be quite honest, it just doesn't work, you know, unless you're going to p- put no. in every, <laughs> every week and pay a fortune for it. Do you know what I mean? Where yes. creating this community and creating people that are kind of into what you're doing and then them passing out the word and, you know, it just it, it builds and builds and builds that way. I think that's the, the key, you know? Yes, yes. Well, it's funny because if you'd, if you'd been doing Starship Sofa Back in 1939, you'd be doing it as a fanzine and running it on Mimeo, and you know, handing out to about 40 or 50 people. And now, thanks to the internet, you can do it and reach, you know, a world audience. I mean, there you are in England. Here I am in Los Angeles. The way I found you, <clears throat> and and I'm a big fan of Starship Sofa, is that I simply went onto iTunes and typed in science fiction podcasts, and there you were. And so I downloaded you and started listening. And uh, and and it was funny because I remember at one point you did this great monologue about eating. Crisps, and it was just a monologue about your life, and it was just so charming. And you had such a, <clears throat> you had such a, such a gift of gab, you know. And you were just so articulate and and, and funny and and interesting. I thought, oh, this is a great guy. And uh, so I started listening to Starship Sofa, and just I, I loved what you were up to, and I loved your enthusiasm and your your just the, the the way you attack it. I mean, I think you know when when I talked to Guillermo, it was very funny because Guillermo, when I took on the book project with Guillermo, he asked. Uh, you know, he asked why I wanted to do the book with him because he's a fan of my work as well. And I said, well, you know, I want to learn from you. And, and uh, you know, I always look for people who are sort of kindred spirits. And the moment I heard Starship Sofa, I knew that you were definitely a kindred spirit because you just have such love for the genre and such love for what you're doing. And, and again, even though I've been in this business, I mean, I, as I said, I sold my first short story when I was 19. So this is, you know, many years ago, decades. And uh, But I'm still doing it for the love of it. I'm, I'm not, I mean, it's nice to earn a good amount of money, but that's not what what um, what what moves me or what enthuses me. What enthuses me is just getting up and saying, "Oh, I've got a great idea. Let's share it with people." And uh, and that's that's uh, why I still I still really love this job. I think I think you have to, don't you? You know what I mean to do this. Even like say, for in my little own world and Starship Sova, you know, sometimes like a new idea or a new thing comes about, and it just it does just like it kickstarts you again, and you're off and again, and it. You just have such. You've, you've got to really have such a good time in the, the kind of little place you work. That that's yes. why you know. That's why I think we carry on doing what we're doing. Yes, it is. It is absolutely, and uh, you know, and it, it's great. It's just great, and being able to reach a world audience <clears throat> is just such a great, great thing. I mean, with 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 uh, World Enough in Time, it was seen by millions of people on the internet, 
and uh, you know, it it was I, I there was no problem with it not being on a network because I didn't need a network. The moment the moment I realized that networks and studios were now um, not necessary uh, in terms of reaching a world audience, I thought, okay, now we're now we're good to go. Now we can really. Uh, Really, really rock and roll with this. You know, it must be cushion as well, though, Mark. See, you spend that much time on, like I say, a TV series, and then you know, along comes these networks, and they just kill it. You know, and I'm talking about, you know, from kind of yes. my point of view, Caprica has been killed now, and I've heard yes. Stargate Universe has been killed, and it's just, yes. it's soul destroying from a, you know, just a person that watches the TV. You know, for yes. someone like yourself, that might. All that work and it's just like it's axed because you know viewing or not viewing figures maybe because the, the likes of Sci-Fi Channel are bringing on bloody wrestling, you know. Yes, I know, I know, and what's very funny because you know I've I've talked with studio executives and network executives where they just don't understand science fiction, and these are executives you know at at networks that that do science fiction. So you'd think, well, gee, then maybe they should you know learn, but um, but if, I've been very fortunate because all the TV shows I've been on staff on had a 22-episode order going in, so I knew that everything I wrote would be shot. So on Sliders or Friday the 13th, the series, or there was another show I did called Beyond Reality with, with Richard Manning and Hans Beimler, uh, where we did two seasons of that. And, um, you know, and <clears throat> you know, so that's, so when you have that, that kind of episode order, you know that you'll at least have a run at it, whereas with, with some of the networks, they'll, they'll air something for three episodes and it's gone, and that's just such a waste of, of everyone's time and efforts. Uh, you know, and, and a lot of my friends are creating shows now. In fact, one of the things I'm talking about right now is a, a good friend of mine is Rockney O'Bannon, who created Farscape and Alienation and Sequest. And he and I are talking about writing a pilot together, uh, which would be great fun because we've been friends, very good friends, for over 20 years uh, since since we met on the uh, on the new Twilight Zone. I wrote for that show as well uh, when Rock was on that show. And um, you know, so but but again, it, you're just rolling the dice. But but at the bottom, at the end of it, it's just how committed are you to the idea with Magic Time. That was originally uh, optioned by Henson. We took it around to the networks. They didn't buy it, but I wasn't done with it. My thought was, well, okay, let's do a series of novels. And I co-wrote those novels with the likes of Barbara Hamley and you know and other science fiction writers. And you know and and, and you just uh, ultimately it's how committed you are to it because now if you can just pick up a camera, you can shoot stuff. I mean, there there's there isn't a single listener to Starship Sofa who couldn't pick up a camera and make a TV show and put it on the internet if they were of a mind to, because you can just do that for you know couple thousand dollars and uh, and you're good to go so if you learn after effects and photoshop you can generate effect shots I mean you know it's it's you're, you're no longer limited in the way you used to be you used to have millions of dollars if you wanted to do a television show that's no longer the case not at all well it, this brings me on to kind of I guess the, the final part of our little chat there Mark and just for everyone on Starship Sofa as well Mark has and I'm so proud about this Mark has agreed to take one of you know Starship Sofa has been doing these workshops Mark is you know a kind of professional teacher of this industry as well if you go on his website you know he's got he, he runs his own lessons his own classes and everything like that Mark's going to host a TV script film script workshop which Mark I'm so pleased about yeah, I think I think it's great, Tony. I really, I'm really, really glad, glad the opportunity arose, and I'm I'm so happy to be doing it with with you and Starship Sofa because, uh, you know, the the reason I started teaching classes was simply because I was running this roundtable of over a thousand people for free. I'd been doing it, you know, it's been going for eighteen years now, every week for free, and a lot of the the people I was just mentoring in that wanted to be mentored much more hands on because here in L.A. in Hollywood. There are a lot of rules, but no one tells you what they are. <laughs> so I see a lot of people go awry and waste time and, and have their hearts broken needlessly. 
and it's and, and the rules are so simple and so easy to convey, but you need someone who can do it. And a lot of these so so called script writing gurus are people who tried to write scripts, failed, and then they become experts. And well, you know, those are not going to be good teachers. Uh, I think I think basically I, I learned from Clarion the Clarion model, which is you take the greatest writers working in the medium, and you have them teach you. So you know Chip Delaney and and Roger Delasney and Gene Wolfe and Joe Haldeman. I, I learned my craft from the guys who are actually you know really doing it. So, uh, so I'm glad with Starship Sofa that we'll be able to have a session where you know I can just sort of say, okay, here's how you really do it. It's you know, it's like you know, if you were trying to open a can of sardines, you know, they give you the the key to the sardine can and you open it, and that's how it works. You know, it's not it's not a mystery. <laughs> well, that's that's the secret. I mean, see, it's it's not something that I, could, uh, I would like to go down. It's just it would be too much stressful for us. But is you know, it's it's fine now if you can. Yes, you've you've got to be able to kind of write. Can a short story writer take his talents over into the kind of this film script side of things? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It's I mean the the only the main thing about con- transferring from prose to scripts is just you have to remember that a script is specifically what you can see and hear. So you lose the internal voice, you learn you you lose that part of it, and and so you have to cut your prose down. You have to be leaner. Um, you know, just getting a hold of a screenplay, and you can download those off the internet now. Uh, you know, just retyping it, retyping ten or fifteen pages of, of someone else's screenplay. You know, a, a successful one shows you how to do it. And and if you want internal monologue, you can do voiceover, but you want to do that sparingly. But it's the rules are very very simple. And then it's just writing what excites you, writing what interests you. Uh, I mean, in, in Fugitive Space, my template for that is the the movie Aliens, which is a film that I, I particularly love. And uh, you know, I'm not ripping off the storyline or any of that, but I'm just looking at it and studying the structure and studying how they made that. That that clockwork go, and so the rules are not are not um, too mysterious. They're pretty clear, and and all it takes is just applying yourself and uh, and doing it. Well, Mark, honestly, it's been fantastic just talking to you. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on Starship Sofa. Oh well, thank you so much, Tony. It's just been a total total joy. There you go. Please do pop over to Mark's site, zickery.com. I'll put a link on the, on the site. You know, he's got the Star Trek, what well, we're talking about, the Star Trek, World Enough and Time. He's got that up on there, so you can actually go and watch the, fu- the full kind of program, the full show. Please do that, because that is just like a, a stunning bit of work there. But also, if you go on to Mark's site, you know, he's got his blog page there. And I really want to get Mark back on, because... Like I say, there's so much you can talk about. If you go on to Mark's blog and just troll down through, you know, there's pictures there. There's pictures when he was actually on, when they were on. The, you remember the writer's strike and the pickets and everything? There's a picket there, a photograph there, sorry, with Harl Nelson, you know, giving him a hug and all that. You know, so Mark's got so much information kind of surrounding the industry, you know. And like I say, if you enjoy your kind of your TV stuff as well, you know, it's just stunning. And it was Mark... Is actually give we give for Blood and Chrome podcast give us an exclusive as well. Mark put in touch with a gentleman called M- Michael Nankin, who's actually a, a director and did all the kind of Battlestar Galactica, a lot of the Battlestar Galactica TV shows as well. What we're talking about over there, Blood and Chrome. So do pop over there and listen to an interview that landed with Michael Nankin. So let's just talk about this kind of writer's workshop because honestly, I'm just so pleased about this is this is taking off and this is happening. You know, it's it's lovely to get someone kind of who just not just knows how to do you know how to do this kind of game, but has been in this industry for so long. And honestly, like I say, if you go over to his site, then you see all, how just deep Mark is entrenched in the kind of film and TV industry, and then to come over and do like a workshop as well for Starship Sova. You know the. 
what, the cool thing is, you know, you kind of sit in your own little world and you think, that, you know, because I was saying this to Mark, how do you get your script in front of someone? How do you get into that kind of environment to get, you know, it just seems like a kind of a locked door society. But, you know, like I say, Mark's going to kind of teach you everything on this workshop, which is just going to be awesome, to be quite honest. You know, the, the, the logistics as well, do you know, how to kind of sort all that out and how to, you know, get your script in front of someone, you know, so you... you it is, it's like one of these things, you sit down and you type it, it's a bit like when you're kind of used to doing short stories, once you get into this kind of industry, you, you know how to go about it, but from the start and, you know, in the blank screen, how do you just get ahead and how do you get into that kind of, like what I've just called there, like a bit of a locked door society, you know, if that does kind of entice you, please pop over and, you know, and sign up for the workshop, just... It is. It's. It's almost kind of childlike, you know, to be given this chance to to do something like that, and you know, the, there could be a chance where you get stuff out. You know, I've, honestly, I've had emails, and I've just had one last night from someone who kind of signed up for the narrators workshop, and he sent us a link over there, and he's done it. Do you know what I mean? He's got himself now like a podcast out, and his audio sound quality is fantastic. So you know, these things do work. And just to be kind of told, you know, the techniques and, you know, if you can get your script in front of someone that matters, that would just be just fantastic. You know what I mean? That would be awesome just to be, you know, accomplish and achieve that. So there you go. Do pop over a new workshop, TV and film script. If anyone's interested, come over the front of the website. There'll be links there. You can kind of sign up. There is a, an early bird buy now ticket and there is, you know, eventually this kind of goes up to the full price of £35. But there is an, an early bird price ticket as well have a look at Mark's kind enough to do you know because it's just in that industry you can just put up a webcam or a, a proper camera and record a little intro so that's on the front of the website as well do listen out for that and do look out for that as well so we come into the main fiction again and it is by last week's writer will mcintosh will as you know has soft apocalypse out a new book or his very first novel i'll put a link again a link on front of the website if you want to go and check out you know will mcintosh in my eyes fantastic writer love his short stories and it's making waves this book as well so do look out for that this story is narrated by dan Rabart. If you go back into the archives of Starship Sova, I think it is show 150, which was actually a Paul de Filippo story. Dan actually wrote like a fiction piece, or sorry, a fact piece, and it was p- kind of picked up as going to be one, was one of the stories that was nominated for, I can't remember which award it was, but the, the actual fact article was Heroes of the Third Millennium, which was all about the English, and I think he moved over to New Zealand writer Hugh Cook. So do check that out if you're interested in Dan's work. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present Link Worlds The world we were linked to was named Cyan because of its colour, blue-green with specks of yellow at the equator. It blotted out almost 60% of the sky. It looked like a gigantic curved wall and it scared me because when I looked straight up part of Cyan was above me and it felt like it could fall on me even though I knew that was impossible. If I looked very closely, I could see roads and buildings on Cyan. There was movement in the sky between Albury and Cyan, 
four thousand to five thousand silver specks, a flock of flying pufferfish migrating from Albury to Sion. I did not want to live on Sion, but father said that passing a family name onto another world was a great thing, and that I should try my very best to be picked to live on Sion, even though I would never see father or mother, or my sister Leela, or my brother Ham, or my uncle or my aunt ever again. So I would try my hardest on the tests, even though I did not want to live on Sion. I wanted to live in my house and sleep in my cubicle with my sister Leela and my brother Ham. When we were at the front of the line, an immigration staff member led us into the visitors' hall, which was a big, empty room. The empty space made me feel dizzy and sick, so that I sat on the floor and put my head between my legs. The floor was made of shiny, clear marble, and there were tiny skeletons of odd plants and animals embedded in it. Mother said I couldn't look at the floor now, maybe later, because they were waiting to give me my test. So I got up and held on to Mother with both hands and pushed my face into her shoulder so I wouldn't see all the empty space. But it still felt bad because I knew the empty space was there. The testing room was smaller. The tester was a Siamese woman. She was tall and thin, like she'd been stretched, and her eyes were set at angles instead of being horizontal. She told me to sit in the chair across the desk from her. Then she told Mother to wait outside. I screamed when Mother let go of my hand because I was completely surrounded by empty space, and she told me she'd be right outside, but that wasn't close enough. So when she'd closed the door, I got up from the chair and tried to sit on the tester's lap. But she told me I had to sit in the chair, across from her. So I did, but it felt very bad. So I wrapped my arms around myself and hummed the yellow bird song. There was a big glass bowl on the tester's desk, and it was filled with about two thousand eight hundred marbles painted to look like tiny worlds. I couldn't tell exactly how many marbles there were because I didn't know the size of the bowl, but I recognised some of the worlds that they were supposed to look like. Kaipo, I said, pointing to a black marble with a yellow stripe around its middle. I pointed at a green one. The green got darker towards the poles. Simsily. Yes, that's fine, the tester said. But she wasn't looking to see which marbles I was pointing at. So how did she know it was fine? She was fussing with a box of things behind her that I couldn't see, but I had seen it for a moment when I tried to sit in her lap. She took out a booklet. All right, Twill. The first part of the test is about current events and issues on your world. She said, "What are the names of the six High Council members on Albury?" I said I didn't know. What is simple fixing? I said I didn't know. She went on asking questions, and I went on saying I didn't know, until she put away her booklet and took out a box with sixteen holes in the top. She told me that things would pop out of the holes, and I had to touch the blue and green ones, but not the red and yellow ones, before they went back into their holes. 
I didn't touch many blue and green ones. I saw what colour they were very fast, but I have slow fingers. More boxes and booklets came and went. Then the tester said, The next part of the test is pattern acuity. I sat up straighter in the chair. I liked patterns. She held up a picture of gold-coloured leaves connected by straight white lines. There were 37 leaves and 162 lines in the picture. Which of the leaves disrupts the pattern? she asked. Disrupt meant misbehave, so I pointed to the bad leaf, the one that made me feel a little sick. She held up another. And in this one? I pointed. Each picture had more and more leaves in it, which made it easier to find the disruptive leaf. The tester was looking at me now, and she was making an O with her mouth, and I wondered if I had done something that polite people don't do. But all I was doing was pointing at the leaves, so I decided that wasn't why she was looking at me. I decided she was looking at me because I was good at patterns. She took out a new kind of picture, a swirl of nuts and berries and other fruits that looked as if I was looking down on them from above. Now, which single object does the pattern most hinge upon? she asked. Hinge upon sounded like a friendly thing to do, so I pointed at the friendliest one, a barbary toward the top left corner. When I'd finished a bunch of hinge upons, she came out with a new set, this one of pretty coloured stones, and asked, which, if removed, would cause the least shift in the existing pattern? That would be the shyest, if it caused the least shift to the others, so I pointed out the shyest stone in each picture. The tester stared at me, and I liked that, because the room didn't feel so empty when she stared at me. I still would have preferred to sit in her lap. She called out her instructions quicker and quicker as she went along, and the answers leaped at me before she even asked the questions, and I twisted my head sideways to catch a glimpse of the next picture as the tester was pulling it from the bag. The pictures came quicker. Her voice sounded like it was filled with foreign sounds, pops and screeches, and my heart pounded with joy, and the empty space didn't matter anymore because I was hugged by the puzzles that came from her bag. I laughed and was very, very happy. Then, all at once, she stopped pulling pictures from her bag. Don't you have any more? I asked. The tester turned her palms up. I'm sorry, that's all. I cried, because I wanted to do more puzzles. But the tester came around her table and put her arm around my shoulder as she led me to the door, and that helped. And she said, Tweel, I think you'll soon get to play with more patterns than you've ever dreamed of. And that helped even more. So I wiped my eyes on the sleeve of my shirt and sniffed to stop the dribble from my nose. When I saw Mother, I ran to her and hugged her hard and told her how many leaves were in each picture and how many nuts and berries and fruits and stones and how many marbles were on the tester's desk. Father told me that I had scored very high on the test, and that Cyan would let me immigrate, and I would work as an assistant navigator. He was very proud, and so was Mother, and my sister Leela, and my brother Ham, and my uncle and my aunt. 
I was sad and scared, and that night I huddled close to my sister Leela and my brother Ham and cried until I fell asleep with my face pressed against Ham's damp nightshirt. I didn't like the trip to Cyan. A Cyanese man put me in a harness and attached me to a very thick rope along with 47 other people who had been accepted for immigration. Then he turned a crank and we were lifted into the air and I was completely surrounded by empty space and I screamed and hit myself because the pain made the empty space leave me alone. I went up higher and higher and the tugging on my harness got lighter until I was almost floating and I was still screaming and it was hard to breathe and I felt dizzy. Then I felt tugging on my head, and then my body flipped around, and I was dropping towards Cyan, and the tugging from Cyan got harder and harder until my feet touched the ground. I screamed and pulled at my harness until a man came and tried to take it off me. It took a long time, because I kept hugging him. Twill, Who is Twill? A man shouted while I was still being unhooked. The man had a pointy white beard with a black streak in it, but no hair on his head. He was tall. He looked even more stretched than most Cyanese. I raised my hands so he would know I was Tweel. He came right over and greeted me, and said his name was Mallowell, and that he was the chief of navigational science on Cyan, and I would be assisting him. You're a curious one, he said while I wiped tears from my cheeks. You're very good at some things, and very bad at others. He looked into the sky and made a humph sound. Then he looked at me again. Fortunately, all of the things we're responsible for are the things you're very good at. Then he got very happy and he laughed and patted me on the head, which I liked. Cyan was nothing like Albury. The ground was mostly silver stone instead of red clay, and there was almost no flat land at all. Everywhere it was steep ups and steep downs. Steps were carved all over, leading in every direction, crisscrossing each other between buildings made out of the same silver stone and also transparent stone. Blue-green water raced through channels cut in the stone, and sometimes the stairs went over the channels. Because of all the running water, there was a hissing sound in the air that hugged you wherever you went. I liked that. I don't like silence. Mallowell took me on a tour of my new home, the Science and Propulsion Centre, and I stayed close to him because there was so much open space and not many people. I didn't understand my home. We stopped in a room where people stood on pedestals of different heights and sang different notes while an old wrinkled Cyanese woman hopped around pointing a long forked stick at them. Another room had walls made of the transparent stone and was filled with water. We didn't go into that room. When it was time to go to sleep, Mallowell led me to a room that was as big as my whole house on Albury and told me it was my room and showed me where my bed was and where to store the stick I used to clean my teeth and my satchel of spare clothing and my soft stone. Then he left me all alone. As soon as he closed the door, I screamed because I had never been alone before. I heard Mallowell call through the door that there was nothing to be afraid of, that he was just next door. 
There was no one at all to look at, only things, and none of the things were even moving, and I felt like I was falling down a deep hole. I ran to the window and looked into the sky so I could see worlds moving, and I recognized one of them, Spin, which I had last seen when I was nine years, 557 days old. From the west, a giant world drifted into view, blotting out the edge of the sky. Though I had never seen this world in the sky, I knew it was Albury. Albury was going away, and my family was going with it, and I might never see them again because worlds rarely link twice. I watched Albury as it moved east and shrunk at the same time. I pressed my cheek against the window pane, watching out the edge of the window until Albury sank out of sight behind the trees to the east. Albury was pink and yellow and orange, and I would watch the sky every day until I saw it pass again, and I would wave to my mother and father and sister Leela and brother Ham and aunt and uncle. I changed into my night clothes and went next door to Mallowell's room, and as quiet as I could so I wouldn't wake them, I climbed into bed between Mallowell and his wife, Siri, who I'd met at lunch. Just as I was drifting off to sleep, the bed jerked, and Siri yelped and jumped out of the bed. "'Twill, what are you doing?' Mallowell said. "'You can't sleep here.' "'Why not?' I asked. "'It's just not what people do,' he said. I got up and went back to my own room and got into my own bed and hugged my knees. And I couldn't stop shaking, but I finally fell asleep and then I probably did stop shaking, but I don't know because I was asleep. My workplace was Mallowell's laboratory. It was filled with big stone pots and circles made of transparent stone and instruments with strings that may have made music but I don't think so. There was a big hole scooped out of the ceiling and floor in the middle of the room, forming an open sphere, and in it thousands of marbles like the one on the tester's desk hung suspended from strings. Light glowed from behind the ceiling, just like the light that glowed in the sky. Merle, I said, pointing to a white marble with grey speckles. Little Boom, Pelpinin, Alberry, I pointed to each one. I liked Mallowell because he let me stay very close to him. Yes, very good, Mallowell said. We're not starting from scratch then. Then Mallowell started to talk. He called it a lecture. He told me all sorts of things about the worlds that I didn't know. I listened so hard I nearly forgot how empty the room was, and my heart pounded so I could hear it in my ears. When Mellowell told me something especially new, sometimes I cried, because it was so beautiful it made me happy and sad at the same time. He told me the universe is shaped like a giant sphere, and when a world reaches near any edge of the universe, the edge pushes it back toward the centre, and that all of the worlds pull on each other a little bit, and the closer they get, the more they pull and that before people developed propulsion for their worlds, they would crash into each other, and people would be crushed. That's why there are too many people on most of the worlds now, because no one is getting crushed. But the most beautiful thing he told me 
was that the movement of the worlds makes music that we can't hear, and that the note each world sings as it moves depends on how far it is from the centre of the universe. He showed me this on his model by holding marbles tight so they didn't bob around, then plucking strings of different lengths. The strings made different notes when he plucked them. He said this was how propulsion works. We change the song our world sings by singing along with it, at just the right place, singing just the right songs, and this causes the world to move differently. Mellowell said he wanted to map all the worlds in the universe so he could understand it better and predict how worlds moved in it. Then we would know where all the worlds were likely to be, unless they were using propulsion, which he called error variants, even when we couldn't see them. And best of all, my job was to help him. I want you to go outside once a day, always at midday, and draw a picture of where all the worlds are in the sky, he said. I can start yesterday, I said. Yesterday? Melowell said. Don't you mean tomorrow? I shook my head and picked up a soft stone and sheet of parchment from Melowell's work table and sketched all the worlds that were in the sky when I looked at them midday yesterday. Then I pointed to the ones I knew and told him their names, and then I told him the worlds I'd seen before, and when I'd seen them. Mellowell made an O with his mouth, just like the tester had done. He put his hand on my shoulder. You... he swallowed. You can remember every world you've ever seen, and the date you saw them? I nodded. Mellowell hugged me so hard that he squeezed a huff of air out of me. He spun around in a circle, and because he was hugging me, I spun in a circle too. He laughed and laughed and said I was solid gold and a genius. I told him he was the genius because he knew a lot more things than me. That night, I got into my nightclothes and waited until some time had passed. Then I went down the hall, and I wriggled into bed between Mallowell and Siri as quietly as I could. But Siri still woke up and huffed and nudged Mellowell awake. He propped himself up on one elbow and looked at me, and I looked back at him and smiled. He said, Now, Twill, we've gone through this once. You can't sleep with us. Can I sleep near you? I asked. How near? He said. I pointed to the floor. Would that be acceptable, love? Mellowell asked Siri. You're a lucky man to have me, Mallow, she said. I am indeed. Thank you, love. Mallowell fetched me a big armful of quilts and weaves, and I made a nest at the foot of their bed. Till tomorrow, Twill, Mallowell said, lying back down. Till tomorrow, I answered. Till tomorrow, Siri. She laughed. Till tomorrow, Twill. You'd better not snore. I don't think I snored because in the morning Siri didn't say that I did, but I don't know for sure because I was asleep. A few days later, while I was making drawings of what worlds were in the sky when I lived on Albury when I was four years and six days old, Mallowell told me that Cyan was going to link with a world called Orc in two days. Mallowell would meet with Orc's navigational scientists to exchange ideas and he was going to bring me with him, because I was his assistant. Exchanging ideas is far more valuable than exchanging goods or people, Mallowell said later. 
while we were adding worlds and adjusting locations on his universe map. He was using his lecture voice. We build on each other's ideas and they spread. If the world that invented propulsion had not linked with other worlds and exchanged ideas, propulsion would not have spread and we would still be living in constant fear of collisions. I think ideas are like the universe, Mallowell went on. He was holding his wooden angle measure in one hand and three marbles, which were new worlds to be added to the map, in the other. Each thing we know is like a world, spinning about in our heads, and when two things we know collide, they see if they fit together in some interesting way. If they don't, they bounce away. But if they do, they cling together and change each other before bouncing away. And this is how ideas are formed. I watched the three marbles in his hand pressing against each other in a clump. Why not three? I asked. Three what? Why not three ideas colliding together at once and seeing if they all fit together in some interesting way? I suppose it could be three. Why not? Or four? Or ten? Mellowell opened his palm and chose one of the marbles, which represented Alto because it was grey on one hemisphere and silver on the other. I made the squeaking sound that I make when things shift in a way I don't like. Mellowell looked at me. What? I want them to cling together. They're not done seeing if they fit together in some interesting way. Mellowell looked at the marbles. They were shiny and smooth. His palm was rough and wrinkled. He looked at me. It doesn't have to be three at once. Two ideas can clump together, and then two different, and then the third two, and they will have passed on the same information as if they all three had clumped at once. I shook my head no. I didn't know how to explain it, but I knew two, two, and two wasn't the same as all three at once. I could picture why in my head. I tried to explain. Two idea links are lines. A three idea link is a triangle. It's not the same as three straight lines. Mallowell looked at me, thinking so hard some of the wrinkles on his face scrunched together. You're talking about worlds, aren't you? You're suggesting that linking three worlds at once to exchange ideas would advance knowledge faster than if they all linked separately. I nodded yes, because that was what I was suggesting. I liked science very much. Mallowell thought some more. Then he said, Hmph. And we went back to work. That night I woke up in the deepest dark, and I missed my sister Leela and my brother Ham very much, so I wiped my eyes on my nightshirt and crept into bed with Siri and Mallowell, taking care to be soft and quiet as a field mom. This time Siri did not wake up, and I fell right to sleep, happy and content. My plan was to sneak from the bed before Siri and Mallowell woke, but when I opened my eyes, Mallowell was sitting up, looking at me. He laughed. Siri woke and rolled over. She looked angry. It's what he's used to, Mallowell said to Siri. He doesn't mean anything, you know, untoward by it. Just until he adjusts. Siri looked at me and sighed. I smiled. He sleeps to your left, not between us, she said, and some nights he cannot come to the room until high dark hour. 
I nodded happily, though I didn't understand why I had to wait until high dark hour on some nights, or how many nights some nights might be. I hugged Siri, then I hugged Mellowell, then we rose, and I ran to fetch the stick I used to clean my teeth, and my satchel of spare clothing, and my soft stone. Now I would sleep much better at night. There would still be too much open space during the day, so I would still shake and cry a lot during the day, but not at night. Orc's navigational scientist was hairy and smelled bad, and he didn't care about our map. He only wanted to talk about propulsion. Orc already had 64 propulsion points compared to Cyan's 16. Mellowell asked him where they were in such a hurry to get to, then he laughed. But the Orkian scientist didn't laugh. He only rubbed his hairy chin, which made the muscles in his arm bunch up. Before we had time to do much talking, the door of the meeting room flew open. It hit the wall and made a loud bang, and I screamed because I was startled. A big hairy man with arms so thick they wouldn't lie straight at his sides came in. Three fat metal sticks dangled from his belt. They clanked together when he moved. He moved fast. He looked angry, and he was making loud breathing noises through his nose. We're leaving, he said to the Orkian navigational scientist without introducing himself. Gather the rest of the science team and meet me at the bridge. Then he left without saying goodbye, or even closing the door behind him. The Orkian scientist got up from the conference table and ran out the door. He didn't even gather up his notepapers first. I looked at Mallowell, and he shrugged. Later, Mallowell told me why the man who was the leader of Orc and was named Salin had been angry. Salin wanted to trade a new thing he called script for Cyan's foods and goods. Script was a piece of paper that said he would do a favour for Cyan later, or help if some other world tried to hurt Cyan. The oldsters, who were the leaders of Cyan, and who Mallowell was one of, didn't like the idea, and that's why Salin got angry and left. I laughed when Mallowell explained what script was, because Cyan might not pass Orc again for years. Maybe that's why Orc is so interested in propulsion, so they can move more quickly and see the same worlds more often, Mallowell said. It was an interesting idea. When Mallowell suggested linking with more than one world at the same time to the other oldsters, they didn't think it was a good idea. It would mean clearing a second linking point on Cyan, so people would have to move out of their houses, because their houses would be crushed. The other oldsters didn't think it would add much, because we could link with as many worlds as we wanted, one at a time. Mellowell told me this, then he told me he was like a spikefish. Once he sunk his teeth into something meaty, he didn't let go. 287 days later, Cyan linked with two worlds at once. The other worlds were Gurpin and Ittentupin. We navigational scientists from the three worlds had a conference, and there was arguing and lots of people making lectures, and asking questions and drawing with softstone. Some of the things that people knew stuck together with what other people knew, and soon everyone was talking about using glass to see things that are very far away, and all the scientists were excited by the time it was over. The merchants were happy too, because linking with two worlds at once made trading easier. 57 days after our three-way link, Mallowell and I were up in the observation tower. 
Mallowell was experimenting with holding special pieces of glass up to the sky to see far away, and he saw a remarkable thing. Three worlds linked together. None of the three worlds were Gurpen or Etintupin, the worlds we had triple-linked with. Your idea is taking flight, Twill, Mallowell said. He put down the glass and rubbed my hair all around, which I liked. Sometimes Sari did it before I went to sleep. Twill, I think I've spied an unrecorded world. Come take a look, Mallowell said. I was watching the engineers install the sluices for Sion's new waterway system. Soon we wouldn't have to empty piss buckets anymore, and fresh water would come up to my room instead of me having to go down to get it. I went over and looked into Mallowell's long view. No, that's Ankari. We saw it once before. I told him when and where. Ah, Mallowell said. I was about to pull my eye away from the long view when something blotted out the world I was tracking. Just for a moment. Then it happened again. I changed the long view's focus to short distance. There were people in the sky. There are people in the sky, I said. What? Mallowell said. What are you talking about? Let me see. I let him see. I looked up with my naked eyes and saw specks in the sky that I knew were people because I'd just seen them close up. What in the universe? Mallowell said. My goodness, they're corpses. Thousands of them. About eight thousand, I said. Cyan is ploughing right through the middle of them, pulling them out of the sky. Mallowell shouted at people in the streets to get inside as the specks got bigger and bigger. Then the sky was filled with falling dead people. People screamed, and I saw a mother in a window across the way cover her child's eyes with her palm. Mallowell and I stood under an overhang and watched. One of the dead people landed on a spiral roof across the street with a loud thump. It was a lady in a pink dress. She was all cut up. I pushed my face into Mallowell's shirt because I didn't want to see her any more, and he put his arm around my head and led me inside. Eight days later, we made an emergency link with a world called Kokoru because there was smoke coming from a lot of Kokoru's buildings, and they had spread a green signal, which means help us. I didn't go to Kokoru, and I'm glad I didn't, because there were dead people there too. The people who weren't dead said that Salen had linked with their world without permission and taken things that didn't belong to him, and his army had killed lots and lots of people and burned houses and shops. If that wasn't bad enough, Salen wasn't just the leader of Orc anymore. He had linked seven other worlds with Orc all at once, not in one long strip, but in a big clump. Houses and people were crushed, and some of the worlds were squeezed in the middle. The crushing of things and the killing sounded very bad, but I thought that worlds squeezed together sounded very good, because if worlds were all hugged up together, and I lived in the middle of the hug, there would be much less open space, and my hands would stop shaking, and I wouldn't cry so much. I cried a lot. The oldsters decided that all us scientists should stop what we were doing and focus on what to do about Salen, in case he ever passed near us again. Mallowell and I stopped working on our map 
and tried to find out where Salen was with the long view so we could avoid passing near him. But he was far away because we couldn't find him. Cyan signed an alliance with 37 other worlds. We linked in clusters of two and three and used propulsion to keep the clusters close together. Every day the streets were filled with the thump of people marching in lines. Instead of baking black cakes and making fabric birds that rode in the sky, everyone practiced killing invaders. My job was to help Mallowell think of ways to run away from Salen if he got too close. Propulsion. I wasn't good at propulsion, so I watched Mallowell. He was using our map to test propulsion models with different configurations of worlds linked together. He tried linking a dozen worlds together in a line. Then he set the whole line spinning very fast. I didn't think that was a good idea, because we would all get very dizzy if he tried that with real worlds. The line of worlds formed a big blurry cloud as it spun. Then suddenly the string that was holding it snapped, and it crashed to the bottom of the sphere of the universe, and the line burst apart and the worlds bounced all over, then settled together at the lowest point in the sphere. It scared me, but it wasn't the loud noise that scared me. It was something else that was in the back of my head where I couldn't get to it. I was so scared that my stomach hurt. I told Mallowell I was sick, and I went to Siri and helped her sort peep nuts. She let me separate them into piles of 222, as long as I also removed the cracked ones while I was doing it, and this helped me not think about the spinning world so much, but I still saw them whenever I closed my eyes. So I tried not to close my eyes, but finally it was night, and I had to go to sleep, and then I had to close my eyes. I had a dream that the spinning worlds didn't burst apart when they hit the bottom of the sphere. They just kept going right through it, and Mallowell shouted, What? 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 And stepped into the map, and he started to sink. His feet disappeared, then his knees, then his waist, until he was only a head. And his head said, We're taking flight now, little twill, where the open spaces go on and on and on. Then his head sank too, and I was alone. I woke screaming. Sari made a shh noise and rocked me, but I couldn't stop screaming for a long time. The empty space from my dream wouldn't go away. It was in my head. The back of my head felt like it had been opened up, and there was nothing back there but space, black, black space, going on and on. And while I screamed, I saw a picture in my mind of the angle that a line of linked spinning planets would have to be at when it hit the edge of the universe to break through it, and that made me scream even louder. I cried out when I spotted Selen's world clump in the long view. First it was a scared kind of cried out, but it turned into a wanting kind of cried out, because all the planets were hugging each other, and I wanted to climb inside and be hugged by all those planets so I would stop shaking and crying all the time. It was a giant lopsided ball, about 150 worlds lashed together, rotating slowly end over end. I called Mallowell. He didn't cry out. He kept just saying, What? 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 And his hand shook when he adjusted the focus on the long view. The oldsters signalled the rest of the alliance about the world clump, and then the whole alliance ran. 
we went back to the map with Mallowell, and we figured out speeds and distances and evasive maneuvers as people poured into the streets, shouting and carrying pointed things. There's no way to escape him, Mallowell said while we lay in bed with the lights out. Nowhere to run. He sounded very sad. Salen's world clump would catch up to our alliance in 27 days and 4 hours. There was nowhere to run. Nowhere that wasn't terrible. Nowhere that wouldn't make me scream forever. I was sorry Mallowell was sad, but I wanted us to live in Salen's clump. I wanted Mallowell and Siri and me to huddle in bed with worlds and more worlds hugging us from the sky. I heard Mallowell sniffle. My Siri... What will become of us? he said. I rolled over, facing Siri, and put my fingers in my ears, but I could still hear him. Our beautiful, beautiful Cyan. He reached over and pushed his face into my neck and cried. I felt the wet from his tears on my neck and the prickle of his beard. You've been a good assistant, Tweel, and a good friend. Siri put her hand on my head and stroked my hair. She was crying. I started to cry too, and shake, because I didn't want to tell them. But they let me sleep in their bed, and Mallowell told me science things, and they were sad, and I could stop them from being sad. But if I did, I would be sad, and I would shake all the time. I lay awake for a long time with my heart pounding. Then I woke up Mallowell and Siri, and I told them about the open spaces that go on and on, and about how you get there. For a long time, Mallowell didn't understand what I meant. He kept asking, Outside what? Outside where? And I would answer, Outside the universe. He asked how I could possibly know there was an outside to the universe, and I said, Because it's a sphere. I'd never seen Mallowell angry. I was very scared. I pressed my face against Ceres' cloak and whispered the yellow bird song. I whispered because Rembach, the man with the twisted stick who always sat in the tall chair in Oldster meetings, thumped his stick on the floor and told me to stop singing it out loud because it was distracting everybody. What choice do we have? Tell me! What choice do we have? Mallowell screamed. His face was as red as the middle section of Gutang, which I'd last seen when it passed Albury when I was twelve years and eleven days old. What you're suggesting is nonsense! Unmatched twaddle! Unbelievable bilge! A pale-skinned woman from Gurpen said. I knew she was from Gurpen because all of the Alliance representatives wore robes that were the colours of their world, and she was wearing a yellow robe with zigzagged bolts of brown. There is no outside. By definition, there is no outside to the universe. We'll only waste precious time that we need to plan our defence. Our defence, Mallowell said. There's no defence against that abomination. It will eat us. It will eat everything. Our only hope is to go where it cannot follow. And where is that? Into your assistant's fantasy world? The woman from Gurpen said. Let's be clear about what you're saying, Mallowell, the representative from Ettentupin said. 
You want us to set our world spinning and head toward the edge of the universe while Salen closes in because your assistant assures you there is an outside of our outside, but he cannot explain why, nor can you. He is an extraordinary boy. Extraordinary, the woman from Gerpen said. It was his idea that caused this mess in the first place. Now you want us to trust him again? I stuck my fingers in my ears and sang the yellow bird song out loud. Sari took me out of the meeting and I was glad. I don't like it when people are angry with me. I didn't get dizzy when the line of worlds was spinning. It looked like it was the sky that was spinning. There was Salen's clump blotting out 35% of the sky. Then it was gone. Then it was back again, blotting out 36% of the sky. I watched from the navigation plateau, which had walls but no ceiling. Malowell and Seri pressed against me on either side, but I still felt like I was falling into a deep hole. When the chief navigator was not shouting directions to the signalers, he was shouting directions to the singers, who were standing on platforms of different sizes and singing into pipes of different circumference that led to science propulsion chambers. I had told him that the speed and angle had to be just right, or we would bounce off instead of going through. I wondered if he could get it just right. I didn't want him to. I wanted us to bounce off. Look! Sari said, pointing at the sky. The sky had gotten white and foamy, like the water at the bottom of a waterfall. There was a terrible boinging noise. I closed my eyes and pressed my hands over my ears, but I could still hear it, and it made my stomach sick. So I shouted the yellow bird song, but that didn't help, and my stomach got worse. Mallowell and Sari were making unhappy sounds, too. The boinging slid behind my eyeballs and it felt like it was going to push my eyes out onto the floor of the navigation plateau and I thought about the woman from Gerpen who said I'd wrecked the universe and I must have made another mistake because this was not empty space. It was awful, awful pain. Then, all of a sudden, it was gone. I opened my eyes. The sky was huge and dark and empty. Just like in my dream, empty space that went on and on with no edges. I started to shake. I slid down between Mallowell and Siri until I reached the floor. Then I hugged my knees, and I screamed. Ho, Twill! A man I didn't know said as I passed him in the great hall. He raised his fists in the air, which is how people on Cyan greeted oldsters, but now also greeted me, which I liked. Hey, old Twill, and thank you, a woman I didn't know said. She raised her fists as well. A man I did know, Suthan, a singer, put his arm around me and pulled me close. I'll be your comfort guard on this walk, Twill. Where are you going? To Mallowell's observation deck, I said as he walked with me. That's what they called it when people walked with me, my comfort guard. It was not as bad as I had thought, the endless black sky, because I had my comfort guard, and I got hoes and hayos from everyone I met. I liked the hoes even better than the comfort guard. It was like what I imagined living deep inside the planet clump would be, because the planets would have pressed around me, even though they didn't actually touch me. 
the hose and good limits pressed against me the same way, even when there was empty space all around, and I did not shake and cry nearly as much. Maybe one day I would sleep in my own bed, but maybe not. I enjoyed sleeping with Siri and Mallowell. Mallowell was looking into his long view when I got to the observation deck. Go ahead, little twill, look, he said, wrapping his arm around my shoulder and motioning to the long view. I didn't want to look at the blackness through Mallowell's long view. Even though Mallowell was smiling, I did not want to look. There were no planets there, and it had no edges. There was nothing but one glowing white ball that didn't give off enough light to light the black sky that went on forever. Mallowell said, Go on, you'll like this. I looked. The long view was focused on our universe, our home. I could see inside it, right through the sphere to the planets inside. I could see shadows of worlds. They looked like specks of dust swirling inside. I wished the long view was stronger so I could find Albury. Adjust the long view seven degrees on the horizontal, Mallowell told me. So I did, and I saw. I saw another universe. Another sphere with planets swirling inside. What, what, what? I said. Mallowell laughed. Now five degrees horizontal, three vertical. I adjusted again and saw another sphere. It was more distant than the first two. I laughed. It was not so empty out here. That made me feel very happy, very hugged. Can we get into these spheres just as we got out of ours? Mallowell asked. Oh, yes, I said. Getting in would be much easier than out. In my mind, I could already see the angle that would allow us to break into the spheres from the outside. Ah, we are explorers then, not refugees, Mallowell said. He looked down at me. We wanted an assistant navigator, and you ended up changing the universe. Then he reached over and rubbed my hair, which I liked. There you go, don't forget, copyright is Young, young Wills. Well, next up and finally is Michael Swanick, How to Run a Con. Hello, this is Daga. And I'm Surplus. And we're here to teach you How, how to, to Run, run a Con. con. Today we'd like to say a few words in praise of the one indispensable man in any con. The fellow whose imagination, ambition, and willingness to go the extra mile for the cause make it all possible. The Mark. This indispensable fellow too often gets bad press. How on earth could he have been taken in, says your average citizen? He must be extraordinarily stupid. This is mean-spirited and unfair. Consider the victim of a big con like The Wire, which was immortalized in The Sting. He's a shrewd businessman, or it wouldn't be worth the con man's considerable expenditure of time and resources. He's an imaginative man, or he wouldn't see the potential profit to be made. And he's a bold man, or he wouldn't seize the opportunity that's dangled before him. A major operation like The Wire can take weeks to run. Plenty of time, it would seem, for the mark to wise up. Yet he never does. And why? Because the con man and his confederates seize control of his reality. 
from the moment the mark finds himself in casual conversation with a compellingly interesting stranger to the bleak instant when he finds himself inexplicably penniless, he's never alone. Indeed, he is constantly surrounded by a cast of professionals who all know their various roles and play them out perfectly. He is the only person present who is not aware that everything he sees is being done for his benefit and edification. A proper con game is, in essence, theater for one. And how much does this once-in-a-lifetime experience cost him, in today's money, several million dollars? Much worse entertainment is bombed on Broadway at considerably greater expense. So really, the Mark is a patron of the arts, and we should all be grateful to him. God God save the the Mark! This is Surplus. And I'm Darger, teaching you how how to run run a con. Though I must say that I always thought that Paul Newman and Robert Redford were a little too handsome to make convincing con men. Well, what can you expect? They're merely actors, after all. There you go, Michael. Thank you so much. Big thank you to everyone who's taking part. And please, if you're interested in the... T- I get excited when I say that. In that TV workshop, you know what I mean? If you want to come along to that one, please pop over to the front of the website. It'll be f- I'd love to see you there. It'd be fantastic. Until next week, I would just like to say good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Storm Sofa. A fatally recent procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1.